All right, welcome everybody. So today we have a very special guest, uh, and I'm going to let him introduce himself right now. Cool. Yeah, my name is Blake Hostler. Um, I uh, was in the USMC for a little while, um, worked in the music and film industry here and there. Um, and now I'm an in-home consultant for exterior projects. So definitely a switch of gears there. Um, but I have a, a, a couple uh, channels that I do uh, online ministry through, um, known as eDisciple on uh, both TikTok and YouTube. And that's where um, I post content um, with the intent of uh, teaching and growing and edifying the body of Christ and helping to answer questions and things like that. And with that inter introduction being done, if you heard last week's episode, we are going and talking about eschatology and specifically all the different overviews of eschatology that we have and really how they view the millennium specifically. We can get into broader stuff as you heard us talk about last week, but really just want to start talking about how different people view the millennium and how we really see those three primary views, one being post-millennial, amillennial, and pre-millennial, which are pretty much the three mainstayers in here. And Blake believes in a post-millennial view. So we wanted to have him on here so he can go ahead and explain what that is instead of hearing it from me, who, who was only recently educated in it. And obviously I hold more of a futurist uh, belief, so I don't want my opinion to ever be skewed up. So that's why I brought Blake on here. He's a solid guy and I really appreciate him coming on to go ahead and do this. So with that being done, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview? What is post-millennialism? Yeah, so um, I have kind of a, I'll present that and then I'm going to give you my biases. So then at least you know what position I'm coming from, um, because there are going to be things that bleed into my eschatology because of all my other beliefs. Um, and they affect them very heavily, especially um, the Calvinistic view that I have. And that's a whole other podcast, so we won't get into that one. Um, but covenant theology, uh, those two things really influence a lot of the uh, the worldview that comes along with uh with post-millennialism, at least, at least as far as I go. So in its basic definition, um, the second coming of Christ in his full glory as king and bridegroom of the church happens post, meaning after the millennium, the thousand-year or uh, nebulous time, depending on what your uh, view on that is, of Christ from Revelation 20, and the, that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical on-earth kingdom, much like um, a lot of the Jews were looking uh, for their Messiah to be a king, much like David on earth. Um, it's the similar thing where we saw that that wasn't the case, that Jesus was a spiritual high priest and spiritual king, and that coincides with the eschatology that we see. Um, so some po again, so, uh, some post mills teach that the time between his ascension and second coming in its entirety represents the thousand-year reign, um, as the term thousand is used figuratively in Scripture for just large numbers in various places, um, while others say that it is a literal thousand years and that it's um, the last thousand years um, right before he comes back. So we don't know if we're in it or not. Um, if you believe the first premise that I gave, that, that, that would mean that we're in it now, that this is the millennial reign. So, yeah, and that, that, that was one of the things that I, when I was going through my studies, I saw kind of differed from person to person, whether or not we're still currently in the church age or we're in the millennium itself right now. And that seemed to be one of the, uh, uh, the different viewpoints when I was going through and studying it. So what would you say? What would you say? Are we in the millennium now or are we I take in the church it as age? The, uh, I take it as the non-literal. 
Um, so my opinion is, is because of what he said in Matthew 28, um, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, has been past tense. So he was king then, and I believe he's king now. So I believe at least at that time, if not really when he rose from the dead, it could be somewhere in there. But at least when he said those words, um, he was already king. Um, so that's my opinion, is that that whole, that whole time until he comes back is the millennial reign. Mm-hmm. And I'll definitely get into a little bit of that um, uh, when we get into some uh, scripture. So... Um, so one other thing about post-mill is that, and I'll just abbreviate it for the sake of, of, of everyone, <laughs> um, it's considered the more optimistic of the three main views, um, as it would posit that the Holy Spirit will draw an unprecedented multitude of people to Christ through the faithful preaching of the gospel and, and to the world, uh, much like the life of believers. So it, it coincides in a lot of ways with what sanctification looks like. It's a forever upward-moving trend where there's bumps along the way. It's not just mm-hmm. a straight line. Yeah, because I'm sure um, most people would. Wars happen and, yeah, you know, like like what we got going on right now. If anybody's listening to this in the future, we have the the conflict with Russia and Ukraine. You know, and some people would look at something like this, or like you know, America pretty much apostatizing and 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 abandoning God for all intents and purposes, and be like, how could the world be getting better and better in this case? Now, uh, yep. so, so with that, I would ask you, could you kind of define, because there are, I, I have seen in my studies for post-millennialism, when it comes to the optimist view, like you said, there's really like, I've seen like two different viewpoints on it, and I'm sure there's more, but I've seen a more reformed view of it, and I've seen a more charismatic view of it. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? I guess I'd have to kind of hear what, what that means, because th- that's the thing. You can be post-mill and not be reformed. I happen to be reformed. Um, so I'm Calvinist, cessationist, uh, covenantal, and um, and holds to the Westminster. Um, even though I go to a Reformed Baptist church, <laughs> but um, I guess I kind of have to hear what what differences there are with that because I'm I'm not really as aware of of a, a different view in that regard. So the main thing, and just uh, I guess a short summary, I'll talk about the charismatic viewpoint uh, just because you know, it's probably the one we're least familiar with. So essentially, think of uh, churches such as Bethel, Hillsong. They have something, uh, I don't know if they exactly hold to this, but they often call it like the seven mountain mandate, where you need to infiltrate uh, certain parts of society, the government, media, entertainment, whatever the case may be. And through that, Christians assert their dominance, spread the gospel, and pretty much evangelize the world, setting the conditions for Christ's return. So that would be a more charismatic view of post-mill theology. Well, I don't know if I would call it necessarily charismatic because there is, as much as I disagree with almost everything about people, um, I, there actually is some truth to that. Because if we, um, if we are to do everything that we do to glorify God and we do it to the best of our ability, by consequence, those things kind of would start to take place. I think that's kind of making it sound more like a world takeover for our purpose rather than necessarily God's kingdom. Because the kingdom building is is not really just that. It's more about um, bringing people to Christ through the gospel. So I guess there's some friction there, maybe a little bit. Um, yeah, the, the really, way that... I, I put that a little bit separate from eschatology, but I can see how it would apply. The, the way that I always kind of viewed the difference would be... Maybe like maybe I would call it the more reformed or tame side of it would be spreading the gospel, Christ doing His work, you know, saving who's He set out to save through the preaching of us, 
and thus bringing the fulfillment of the church together, while probably the more charismatic view is a much more assertive, we have to do this, we have to be the enablers, uh, we need to set the conditions. Because obviously, if you don't have a more reformed view of how salvation works, uh, you believe, essentially, that while I don't think they'll ever admit it, you believe that you are responsible for bringing someone to salvation. That if you don't preach that word, this person may not ever be saved, even though they could have been, when obviously we, we know everybody that Christ set out to save will be saved. Yeah, so I see what you mean. Yeah, it's putting more of the power, it's putting too much power into the hands of humans. Yeah, and that, um, and and that was, yeah. If we don't do something, God's hands are tied. So yeah, I, I see what you're getting at with that, for sure. Yeah, and that seemed to yeah. be the, the main difference there, and I did want to uh, bring a distinction into that. Uh, so, so after I rudely interrupted you, you can go ahead and continue oh, no, on. Um, so, uh, yeah, just, and just the last little part about the general post-mill. Um, so at the end of this period, meaning the millennium, um, Christ will return. There will be a general resurrection of the dead, just and unjust, and the final judgment will take place. So that's kind of the end of that. So, so you see the resurrection of the dead being there's, there's no separation between the resurrection of the, the just and the unjust, like say in the in the pre-mill view, you know, resurrection of the of the essentially all the saved, and then thousand years, and then resurrection right. of the guilty. And I'll get to why that's really super problematic later. Um, at least in my view, it's super problematic. No, yeah. Um, but yeah, the general resurrection um, would be now. It does talk about too in Revelation 19, um, but it's it's talking about those who died during the tribulation so we haven't really got into it quite yet but um the post mill belief is that that was a past event that the tribulation was a past event that was focused on the judgment specifically of the covenant breaking israel and jerusalem specifically and so those that were that died martyred um killed at the hands of nero and we'll get into that unfortunately as well mm. um that all of those were that first resurrection um and then the second one was the general resurrection of all the dead so, so a yeah, lot of there, there is a difference there. So if I can briefly summarize just to try to capsulize it. So essentially everything from some part in Revelation 20 uh, 19 at, like in, yeah a little bit of 19 but yeah. And and then bef everything before that was pretty much all bef like the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem and before that and then everything after that part is something that's yet to come. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so that that, that yep. I guess that would be a good summarization. And if anybody's well, that, listening, that actually segues perfectly into partial preterism. But yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, if anybody's listening and doesn't know what the seventy eighty destruction is, just in case, um, we'll get into. Yeah, we'll we'll get into it a little bit more in depth. But essentially, just know before we get into it, there, there was a time and period where Israel was essentially decimated and destroyed. The temple was destroyed uh during the 7080 destruction which was you know done by the Romans if you're a history buff you would you probably know about it and it's actually really interesting uh read and a lot of a lot of different eschatological I always mess up saying that word uh you know uh, uh implications there that Jesus specifically talked about which is also more proof that the Bible is real uh but we'll get into that Absolutely. once we get into it just wanted to throw that out there in case anybody was confused on what the 7080 destruction is yeah, and I'm going to do a little a little bit here. Um, I'm going to do just an exegesis through Matthew 24, and I'll keep it as brief as I can because you know it's a whole chapter. But no, that's fine. Here on this podcast, we we really we really want to 
you know, uh, instead of just talking about scripture, we do appreciate like reading into the scripture. So that way people can understand the full context. And as always, make sure you all are reading this for yourselves. Don't just take our word for it. Get in the, get in your Bible, read it for yourself, uh, because you never know who's talking to you. <laughs> I am a fallible human man and I make plenty of mistakes. So same here. the word is the infallible word. And that's, that's what, that's the source. <laughs> um, so, um, we, we mentioned it a second ago, partial preterism. So I still haven't heard really great arguments for full preterism, but the difference is is that a full preterist would say that literally all of the prophecy in the Bible is done. Define the like, word preterist for anybody that may not know. So that means that it that it would have happened in the past. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it is. So me, I would call myself a partial preterist because I believe most of it did take place. Um, but again, the last few chapters of Revelation, and there's some other parts here and there, um, uh, Thessalonians, a couple other things that Paul wrote. Um, that are still part of the future events as well. Um, but so full preterisms of the idea that all of the contents of the Bible have already taken place, um, but the general stance of most in the post-mill and on-mill camp is a partial preterism, meaning that most of it has taken place. There is still some coming, the resurrection of the dead and the white throne judgment, uh, basically the last couple of chapters of Revelation um, of what was described by Jesus also in Matthew 24 are still future. Um, so a couple of other inherent biases for me. Uh, again, we, we mentioned I'm Reformed. Um, what Reform means is that you hold to covenant theology, which is a whole other podcast again of, of itself, but I'll touch on it briefly just so we have some context. Um, I personally hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, I'm Calvinistic and a cessationist as well. Um, so I, I grew up believing in the pre-mill, pre-trib view for most of my life. Um, I was in my, let's see, um, late teens early 20s when the left behind series was being released <laughs> the um, left behind super famous. um and, and i didn't actually ever see the movies i'd finished the books and i just kind of was done with it i didn't ever watch them i know there were a couple of different versions but um but um once once i was introduced to the idea that there were other views i was like i don't know i don't know if that could be right or not a friend of mine actually had convinced me of post-trib um which that so just so we get the terminology right so when i say that i mean a premillennial position but the seven-year tribulation occurs and the rapture would occur at the end of the tribulation that's what post truth means yeah. that's actually so what i, I hold to classic classic yeah. uh premillennialism yeah sure sure so so you don't fall into necessarily the the darby schofield mid-1800s camp that's fair you say that i actually that's have a schofield bible sitting easy. sitting in my room right now yeah <laughs> I mean, to me, that one—not to sound, you know, any condescending in any way—but that one's the, the that version of premillennialism to me is the easiest to dismantle because it really is so new. It, um, it is. It, it, we'll, his, history-wise, it, it doesn't have the history back behind it to really support it. I mean, there's prominent teachers that that teach that style, but like we said, we'll get more into it when we do the pre-mill episode. But uh, yeah, it's it, it is like you said, it is a newer uh, view on eschatology. Um, and I'll get into some of the history in a moment as well. So um, just to touch briefly, I won't, I won't get, I'll skip my Calvinist section because if you're, if you're this deep into it, at least I would hope you have some kind of idea of Calvinism. But I'll just say that Calvinism focuses very heavily on God's sovereignty. We'll just leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys want, if you're newer to this podcast, I did an episode on Calvinism. You can go back and, go. and, and find that. And really, we talked mainly about the five points. So if you're curious, you can go back there and check that out. Awesome. Um, so covenant theology, and, and again, I'll keep it brief. Um, 
this is kind of the, the opposite of like your dispensational view. So covenant theology, people that hold to that, um, feel that each covenant built upon the last and that Jesus made the covenant of redemption before the creation of the world with the Father, established the covenant of works starting with Adam, and then fulfilled the Mosaic covenant, um, becoming the, the high priest, the final Adam, the perfect sacrifice, all of those terms that you see for Jesus, um, those were all a continuous and complete thing. And that's why he didn't say, I came to abolish, but he, he came to fulfill. So all of those are tied together. Um, the reason that ties into um, eschatology so much is because the end of that covenant was that that period, not just when Jesus lived, but a little after that, was the most chaotic and biggest change in all of history of the church. Because the whole Bible points to that time. All of the New Testament points back to that, and all of the Old Testament points forward to that. So, I mean, it's all about Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I'll kind of leave it at that, because, I mean, there's a lot more that can be going to. Uh, but, um, we, in our podcast, we actually did an episode on covenant theology. So, Oh, go um, ahead and you mention your podcast before we uh, get too far yeah. in this, so you, people can find yeah, you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's, it's through Wheat and Tares. Um, it is uh, called the Men of the Way podcast. If you go to my channel, I have a playlist of all of our stuff there, too, as well as some excerpt, excerpts <laughs> that I uh, edit out um, just as little bite-sized chunks. Um, so mine's just eDisciple. If you search that in YouTube, it should be the first thing that pops up. You'll just see my face with these same headphones on. <laughs> so real quick for covenant theology, uh, just, just in case, you, you did a good job explaining of what that is. Now, one of the things on the pre-mill side, just because I've been there, uh, and it's constantly kind of berated this way, that covenant theology equals anti-Semitic. That's because one of the annotations. How would you respond? Yeah, so would you say the church replaces Israel or that the church and Israel are now fused together? That grafted in, because those very words are used in the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, so no, it didn't replace Israel. Now, if you're talking about the nation of Israel, what was the theocracy of Israel, that was its own thing. But all of the New Testament references to Israel that are, I'd say, after the death of Christ and, and ascension, most of those are talking, like especially through Hebrews, that's talking about the grafted in, like what would you would really call the Catholic Church. Not Roman Catholic, but the little but the Catholic. universal Catholic Church. Exactly. Yeah. So we are grafted into Israel and have become the become Israel, if you will, not replaced Israel. That's a that's a different viewpoint. So no, I don't hold to that. So all three of these views, Amil, Premill, and Postmill, in fairness, all can be found in the historic Church Fathers. There's not a view that actually is the most overwhelmingly dominant, where you can say, look, all of this other stuff is a Gnostic thing. It's it, it's definitely not like that. You'll find each of those three in very respectable, well-known church fathers from Augustine to Tertullian to um, Irenaeus, and we'll get into a little of that. Um, but just want to make that pretty clear. Mm -hmm. um, you won't find if someone gets on and says, "No, the church fathers say this." Well, they say a lot of things. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the Bible is what's infallible. Those are still men that are fallible men that can make mistakes. And, and that's a good thing um, to reiterate. Uh, like I said, we talked about it in the previous episode, but the very fact of the matter, this shouldn't be a separating issue in which you decide whether or not you're going to fellowship with somebody or uh, think that they're not a Christian or something like that. The, eschatology is a very mixed bag, and you will see people uh, in the, I guess, the, the, the big theology world 
you know, that are close friends and close buddies and preach at each other's churches and have completely different views when it comes to this. So don't ever let something like eschatology separate you. Yeah, it isn't salvific. Now, it can certainly affect how you choose to evangelize and it can affect your worldview. Um, But it certainly doesn't affect your salvation because it's the gospel and the nature and character of God that really define whether or not you're saved. That's what it all boils down to. Mm -hmm. The the only one that I would probably get on the closest side of, uh, and I use this word, I don't use this word lightly, but, you know, heretical would probably be the hyper preterist or the full preterist view. At that point, you're kind of denying the resurrection of the dead. Um, I feel like Paul addressed that pretty well in Thessalonians, but yeah, it's, it's borderline. I mean, the thing is too, is if a group take, if you take any secondary too far, it can become salvific. So if 100%. you look at the Mormons, the Jehovah's witness, they took the pre mill um, kind of dispensational view way too far and it actually became cult. Now that's, there's more to it than just that, but that's one example. Seventh day Adventists, all of those kind of um, known cults, uh, have taken the eschatological view way too far. Mm-hmm. So, and even some Torah observant groups as well. Oh yeah, because um, they'll they'll take the idea of the pre mills that the temple has to be rebuilt, and they'll say, well, since it's got to be rebuilt, that means that we have to reinstitute sacrifices. Yeah, and, and the Jesus sacrifice wasn't enough, and that's that's one that's, of the uh, comments that I'm gonna have during the pre mill episode because even me, like I hold to a more pre mill. You know, how do you explain? with the temple and like, why would you start reinstituting sacrifices? Like it doesn't make any sense. Right. Absolutely. And I know some oh, pre-mills so. who just kind of dismiss that like, Oh, well, you know, we don't really, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's right there in revelation. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no real way around that. There's mm-hmm. gotta be a temple or it's gotta be the one from the past. Yep. Um, so a couple of, so just to start off a couple of names here. Now there's a lot more than just what I have here. I have books that, that go into all of this, but, um, um, I'll just start with uh, Clement of Rome and Justin Martyr. Uh, so Clement, and Ro- Clement of Rome was 30 to 100 AD, Justin Martyr 100 to 165 AD, so they were very early on. Um, they taught Christ would literally and physically return, and there would be a general resurrection of the dead. Uh, this point is consistent with all three eschatological views, with some ambiguity of the timing of these events and what problems that timing creates. Um, we'll get into more of that with Augustine. Um, but that, that point needs to be made that that is at the very earliest part of all of Christianity, that idea was present. Yes, everyone affirmed that there would be a resurrection of both the, the, the we'll say, the good and the bad, you know, the yes. just and the unjust, and, and judgment would be given at that point in time. Uh, that, that, that's something that, like you said, all three views really affirm and believe in. Christ is coming, and he, 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 there will be a resurrection. You'd have to throw away all the epistles of Paul to say otherwise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so the next one, uh, Irenaeus. So this one is is one of the ones, and I'll have to reiterate a little later on with this one. But um, so Irenaeus is one thirty to two hundred two A.D. Um, so it's stated that he taught a more classic premillennialism, which I kind of would agree with. Um, but this doesn't include a secret or rescue rapture um, due to the failure of the church and the gospel. That's a big difference between uh, some of the differentiating views of the pre-mill camp. Um, So to address, here's a weird one though, to address the issue issue of sin entering the world after the millennium, which is one of the problems that that I was gonna bring up later, he posited that the souls of the dead would remain in a subterranean state until the final resurrection and the judgment after the millennium. So he he was known to have some erroneous ideas. That's almost like a soul sleep. 
Yeah, which is a very Seventh-day Adventist type thing to say, yeah. Yeah, so fallible man, um, Mm -hmm. but we'll leave that one there. You don't throw Um, the baby out with the bathwater, yeah. Right, right, right. Chew up the meat, spit out the bone. Yeah, in fairness, a pre-mill, a pre-mill lean, if we want to say it that way. Uh, So Tertullian, 160-220 AD, he held some similar views to Irenaeus, but was ambiguous in his description. I'm about the timing of the new Jerusalem. And he actually tried to symbolize it in some way to Jesus's flesh so that the new Jerusalem wasn't actually a new Jerusalem or a city or anything like that. So again, a little bit of, of um, interesting ideas there. Um, Origin also pretty well known, 185 to 254 AD. Um, so this is when you start to really see some of the key tenets of post-millennialism being, um, being posited early. So 185 so again pretty pretty early on here he probably did his writing just at, into the um the third century there uh so he held the irrefutable belief in the ultimate triumph of the gospel which to me that to me that's an undeniable thing mm-hmm. um because of the themes presented in the epistles especially um so he described even the mo- this is a quote even the most barbaric of nations will bend the knee and the church will overcome um, so this is descriptive of that constant moving forward, mo- upward movement building of the kingdom until all enemies are made a footstool at the feet of Christ. Um, so that was one of those big key tenets that um, is in his writing, um, that optimistic um, view that the kingdom will overcome and the gospel will overcome. Uh, so Athanasius, um, we're getting into the uh, fourth century here. Um, so similar to Origen, uh, since the Savior's advent, this is another quote, since the Savior's advent, idolatry will decrease, eventually ceasing to be. And this is, again, uh, consistent with that growth. Now, even if you look at today, um, do you see people worshiping traditional idols? Now, granted, there are spiritual idols where you could say someone worships money or themselves or things like that, more of a, a figurative kind of idol, but literal mm-hmm. idols. You don't see that all that much, maybe a little in Buddhism with the statues. Um, I won't get into some other ones that I don't want to make some people angry. But anyway, the worshiping of a physical idol or physical created things in place of God. So in a lot of ways, that's actually true. Um, so let's see, uh, Augustine on um, that one. Uh, most people know who that is. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, getting into the fifth century. Um, so the interme- intermediate period. So that's what he called the the millennium essentially um so he separated the ascension of christ and the final return as this intermediate period so this is from the writings in the city of god um he teaches from revelation 20 of a spiritual resurrection and later in verse 6 a physical one and this is actually the 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 view that i hold to as well Mm -hmm. even as far back you know 1700 years ago um this means that the physical resurrection and the second coming are in the same span of time not a thousand years later so in chapter 20, verse 4 of Revelation, um, we see that those who had died during the tribulation, who had not bent the knee to any but Jesus, reigned in heaven with him. Then in verse 5, it says clearly, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, so post-millennium. Um, then Satan is released and a final conflict occurs. Uh, Jesus rains down fire and consumes them. Satan thrown into the lake of fire. Where the beast and the false prophet already were, that's something interesting to note. Um, mm-hmm. Then the de- resurrection of all the dead and the white throne judgment. Um, so that all was posited 
um, by Augustine. Um, now, this information, um, I, I summarized a book, <laughs> a whole book into just that. Um, but um, and what I book do was that? This book. It's uh, Before Jerusalem Fell by Dr. Kenneth Gentry Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's excellent. It's it's academic. It's it's accessible to a point, but I won't say that it's an easy read because it is it is an academic history and then showing, OK, here is a prophecy. Here's why this fulfills it. Here are the sources, both biblical and extra biblical, that support that. And then they move on. So it's not that kind of narrative read that, that a lot of people like. But it's an excellent, excellent book um, regarding really history. It, it does, of course, lean and, and posit post-millennialism as a presupposition, but it's it doesn't take it to a way where it's just saying all else is false. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Exactly. So um, that's kind of a, a brief church history. Um, I do have some information from the creeds. Um, and any of this, if, if we want, for sake of time, if we want to cut any out, of course we can. Um, the creeds, I didn't get into a whole lot of depth, um, but there's two kind of chunks that I wanted to bring up because it is important. Um, The creeds really, they matter because it gives you a snapshot of what the Orthodox view of that time was. Mm -hmm. And it it is important. And for other people out there that may be listening to this or maybe just stumbled across this, uh, you know, creeds, creeds were pretty much a way of, of it's the about us section that most churches have on their website now. Uh, that really explain what they believe uh, and, and solidify that. So that way you know you know what they're getting into. This is what we adhere to. This is what we teach. This is what we truly believe about the Bible. That's essentially what these creeds are. I know some people hear the word creed and they, they oh, oh my gosh, no, like, <laughs> I don't want to go in under creeds. There's nothing wrong with a creed. <laughs> Absolutely not. And it served also as, as guardrails because what you see in the first few centuries was heresy after heresy and some of them are still alive today actually most of them are still alive today well yeah they 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 get struck down and then they somehow repopulate back up exactly so creeds and confessions and that's that's one of the reasons why reform folks um really feel that that's a necessary thing in the church now again it it needs to be said that a creed and a confession is not scripture Mm -hmm. it is a summation of scripture um to to give a synopsis of the beliefs so it never would replace scripture or supersede scripture. If a creed was wrong against scripture, well, the creed is wrong. Mm-hmm. The scripture's not. So that does need to be said. Um, but no, that's that's a that's a good way to say it as well. Um, so there's three, um, just right off the top. So the Old Roman, the Apostles' Creed, Apostles' Creed, most people are, are pretty familiar with, at least in the evangelical world. Um, and then the Nicene Creed. So this is late 2nd century to 325. Um, All of these state the purpose of Christ's return is to judge the living and the dead, Mm -hmm. and none of them mention a temporary millennial kingdom on earth. Now, is that a smoking gun? No, it's not. Um, It is just, and it it almost is an argument from silence, but it does say that the purpose is that. So that is is said in a very strong statement, that that's his purpose for his return. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, Also, the Athanasian Creed, now you're getting into 500 AD here. Um, But this uh, states that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give accounting of their own deeds. This is most consistent with the post-mill and all-mill view, but problems arise for the pre-mill view, and then Jesus would come and then wait for a thousand years to judge, would endure a rebellion and an apostasy while reigning physically on earth, then defeat Satan and judge. So that's where I see some conflict with a lot of the pre-mill views. 
Um, so I paused there to see if you wanted to throw no. a question out, but we can. Well, we'll get more into it when we actually do the pre-mill. So I will say <laughs> the main reason why most pre-mills, uh, you know, hold to that is just really the sequential ordering of how Revelation is written, you know, like specifically like me. Like I, I see the way it's worded. So I would assume based off the wording that there would be the return, a thousand years set up, uh, you know, everybody living with Christ, you know, life is good. And then afterwards, the resurrection, uh, the second resurrection, which nobody wants to be a part of. And that's the one for judgment specifically. Uh, so that's that's the way when I when I read Revelation 20 and like that sequential order. That's what kind of my brain holds to. And this is obviously, you'll hear more of it during the pre episode, but most pre will look at the book of Revelation and read, for the most part, uh, literal. They'll read it as literal. So when there's locusts coming out with scorpions, you know, tails and all this stuff, come flying out of the, the center of the earth, that, that's what we think is actually going to happen. When there's an angel flying around going, whoa, whoa, whoa to the world, you know, that's what happens, which actually uh, Josephus writes something very interesting about that, actually, in the 70 AD destruction, but we'll get to that when we get to it. And just to give you a, a spoiler alert on that, is be, uh, the reason for that is that uh, most post mills hold to the cloud coming being a separate event from the second coming. So the, the cloud, anytime it's coming on the clouds that we see in the Old Testament, I'll get into this again. I'm just giving you kind of a, pre, a preview, but that the cloud coming is most referenced in judgment. I'll get to that. I don't want to spoil what I'm going to say in a second. Okay, um, yeah, Because I yeah. do have a section on that, the cloud uh, stuff and some scripture to back it, which is always important. <laughs> um, so I, I mentioned the Athan Athanasian Creed. Uh, so the Didache. Um, and I know some of this is dry. I'm hoping that um, you guys can just get it through because we'll – we're about to get into Matthew 23 and 24, and uh, that's where a lot of the meat is of, of what I'm going to present. So, um, well, like I said, this case, this is a meaty this is a meaty episode. We're we're talking about things yeah. that people have been I don't want to say arguing, but debating over for two thousand years. Some been arguing. <laughs> yeah, let's be fair. Uh, there's arguing too. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so yeah, the Didache, um, which is the teaching of the twelve. So this is like the earliest form of a creed that we find. Um, says this, and third, the resurrection of the dead, yet not of all, but as it is said, the Lord shall come and all his saints with him. Then the world will see the Lord coming upon the clouds in heaven. This is descriptive of what Augustine taught, and that the spiritual resurrection and a separate physical resurrection. Um, and we'll get we'll get into that later with the cloud section. Um, but that's kind of what we see in the Didache, and that's how it would have been interpreted. Now, a pre-mill could look at this and make a similar view to kind of what you presented a moment ago, and that would hold some water. So, in fairness, I can see both views out of the Didache, mm -hmm. it, even though I don't agree with it. <laughs> I actually pulled up the scripture. Just, I just wanted to uh, briefly touch over it real quick. Like, this is what I meant by sequential if you go to Revelation uh, chapter 20, really, you can start at 19, but we're not going to read all that because it's going to take forever. Uh, but you could start at 19 with the you know return of Christ. And then really at seven, this is where Satan is freed. So when the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather to them for war. The number of them, which is like the sand of the seashore, they come up to the Lord, uh, or sorry, and they come up the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, uh, which we would believe to be Jerusalem, the beloved city. 
And the fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet also are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then immediately after that, and I won't read into it, then comes the resurrection of those who will be judged at the great white throne judgment. And that's why I say when we read it kind of sequentially, and we see these as separate events, that's where most pre-mills are kind of getting their viewpoint from, which you already know, because you said you came from a pre-mill viewpoint originally. I did. You know, I definitely understand the point. So so what you'd read there was the beast and the little beast being thrown in, but we don't see Satan being defeated until into chapter 20, mm-hmm. which is after the thousand years. So just want to make sure that that's clear from our view as well. Um, so that's in chapter 20, and that, that part is after the thousand years and even if you're reading it in the literalist term so you're reading the thousand years are ended satan will be released from its prison all that which again would be after the thousand years which we don't see those thousand years are as a perfect idealistic time we see that as the building of the kingdom up until the final part where he comes in glory defeats the last of his enemies and the last enemy being defeated. With so so from your viewpoint in post-mill, do you believe Satan is currently bound right now? And if so, There's like, how do you describe that? that? So it says deceive the nations, and it's specifically saying Satan. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't, deme- that doesn't mean that there couldn't be demonic activity. I certainly think that there, there could be. Um, but I, I personally do see it as him being bound because he isn't, after after the events of that and we saw the fall of rome the upward trajectory and it's if really if you just look at history in general it really seems undeniable that you you see more morality rather than less it's true time. we, we kind of have this that it was so chaotic you could be walking along the street and be killed and no one would care and i think we we as christians today have a tendency to using a cliche statement, you know, we kind of see the trees instead of the forest. So we see the world that we're living in today. And I can admit this as a, you know, more futurist guy, you know, we see immediately what's in front of us. We see wars going on. We see, uh, you know, all the, 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 the policies being passed, you know, praising the sins of men. And we think, you know, how is the world getting better and better and better? But when you do step back and take a holistic view of everything, where the world was drenched in straight paganism, and Christianity was just amongst a few thousand people at the beginning of the church, you know, how, you know, how it's gone up over history. When you take a very holistic view of it, you can see how the world is actually getting evangelized uh, more and more and more. You know, if you talk to the boomers, they probably say 1950s was like the capstone of that and it's going back downhill. But like I said, it all, it, it all starts from that viewpoint of where we're really just looking at the tree in front of us instead of the entire forest. And I can, I can concede to that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so I'm not going to go into the, all of this stuff. I did have a, a chunk on Matthew 23 and really what I wanted to just emphasize from it is this is the, the chapter where Jesus is just roasting the, the Pharisees, just tearing them in half and rightly so. Um, but the, the takeaways that I want to throw from this is, so he was, he was putting the condemnation of Israel in in their hands, um, and it kind of ends with him saying that all of these things will come on this generation. So all of the woes that he talked about in Matthew 23, he told them all of these things I told you will come upon this generation. So what does this generation mean? Um, now to a Jew, 
And of course, Matthew was written primarily to Jews, mm -hmm. um, and then a Luke, of course, was geared more toward Gentiles. That's why the language is different. Um, the presentation is different. You know, Matthew has a genealogy. Um, Luke is about uh, the birth of Christ and, and how that came about. Um, but that's a 40-year span. And where does that come from? It comes from Exodus. So the generation that had to die out before they could enter the Promised Land took 40 years to do so. So a generation in the Judaic sense is a 40-year span. So if we assume that um, Jesus was saying this, these things as early as age 30, so if it was 30 A.D., 40 years later would be 70 A.D. Mm -hmm. So within that generation, that would be a prophecy that he made that would have come true. And there's a couple more coming up that, that apply to that as well. Oh, yeah, because there's, there's strong statements. Like today, even just in my personal studies, I was studying the— uh... The transfiguration in, in Matthew 17 and you know before that before he gets to the transfiguration Jesus tells them you know surely that you know some of you will not die until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory and uh, you know obviously from a pre-mill standpoint we would uh, we would defend that and say he was talking about the transfiguration where uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong the post mill would probably say this is referring to the 70 80 destruction yeah, and the, and the coming of judgment. And we know of at least one, and this actually isn't generally contested because the people that are pre-mill really have to put the writing of Revelation after 70 AD. So they would say that John lived through it, which actually helps our case. Oh, and that, um, but John being one yeah. of the, the examples. Of and that's actually a good point that you brought up. A, a lot of this uh, post-millennialism especially, a little bit in amillennialism, they're kind of, I've seen people defend it the other way too, though. Uh, that it doesn't really matter. But I know in postmillennialism, the, the belief that Revelation had to have been written prior to the 70 AD destruction would be the only way that it could make sense. Uh, yep. a, you know, a lot of stuff that I read, now granted, a lot of my stuff is might be skewed from my perspective, you know, obviously points to Revelation being written somewhere in the 90s, time, 90s time frame. I can tell you why, where that came from. <laughs> By all means, please do. I'd love to get we educated. We could skip to that, and then I could come back to Matthew 24, because that's actually the one after. Um, I'm, I'm addressing when was Revelation written after the, the Matthew Okay, 24. we can get to that one. We'll, yeah, we go, go through. One. Yeah, go through the way that you want to do it. You wanted to, to start with exegesis first. So, so again, with Matthew 23, basically what I wanted just to lay out is that he's roasting the Pharisees, and he's talking about how, see, your house is left to you desolate, mm -hmm. and it all seems to be of a very imminent thing. And that language of imminent, something going to happen soon, was very prevalent, including the book of Revelation, when we get to, right at the beginning of chapter 1 of Revelation, at, you see at hand, soon, um, all of these words, and if you look at them in the Greek, that's just what they mean. You know, it's it, it's, yeah, it's undeniable. And, and what's funny is, is um, now, granted, you said a lot of times pre-mill or futurists tend to be more literal. Well, if you're taking that, if you're taking everything literal, then why are you taking that particular thing as figurative? No, I was just, uh, I was just gonna say that in my own head. Yeah, no, because yeah. it's kind of like the cheater standpoint where you're kind of picking, like, well, this was more so spiritual, that this was actually literal. <laughs> and the thing is, is I mean, when it comes to the the literalism idea. When people read Jeremiah and Isaiah and they're reading about prophecies that already happened and that were like, well, this was about the destruction of Babylon and we saw it happen. And in that, you see things like stars hitting the earth and things like that, the same kind of hyperbole that you see in Revelation. But then we're like, well, no, we, we know from history 
that that was this. Well, then why don't we know from history that Revelation was that? It's the same question that could be asked. And to me, I mean, in, in respect for, for pre-mills, there's some inconsistency there where they'll admit to hyperbole in the Old Testament, that, that, but then deny it in the New. You know what I mean? Mm, no, um, that I'm, I'm, I see it exactly. Like, you know, I'm, I love, uh, love Johnny Mac. You know, I'm, I'm big. John MacArthur has been one of those people who really, yeah, solidifies me uh, when I'm when I'm reading and trying to get explanations out of other things. But I did find some of his when you go back to those Old Testament prophecies, specifically like you know, I will take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, things like that. The explanations don't his explanations don't really line up with pre mill views. So he's like admitting the right points, but he but it doesn't it's not compatible with a pre-mill view uh, per se. Now, maybe I'm not understanding it correctly, and there's always a very strong possibility of that. But, sure. you know, it, I, I, I do see, I can admit, I do see inconsistencies there uh, w when it comes to that. This is this is not easy, easy stuff. No, it's not, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I, I like him a lot, too. And really, the, the only thing I disagree with him on really is eschatology. Most everything else I've heard out of him, like, yeah, right on, bro. Yeah, yeah, keep it flowing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, with you there. And he's and obviously the in the uh, the new premillennialism camp, the pre-tribulation pre rapture side. Just wanted to throw that out there. He's not quite dispensational, but he sometimes talks like one. He's which... he, he describes himself as a leaky dispensationalist. Leaky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, always, I always kind of found that, that funny because, you know, you get into hyper dispensationalism, and then those people, nah, never mind. I don't want to go into it right now. Yeah, and all that, yeah, that can get uh, problematic. Um, so, so Matthew twenty four. Um, I'll just get into it. So, this is something that I teach out of a lot, um, and my bias, I'll tell you, comes from uh, James White and Jeff Durbin. Um, mm -hmm. I listen to them a lot, so a lot of what I say probably will sound a little bit like them. So if you've heard them, um, I've got a beard too, so I feel like I have the right. You got you got the Calvinist so. beard rocking. I'm still in the army, so I <laughs> yeah. can't really do it myself. But right, we'll right. we'll see in three more years when I get out. <laughs> yeah, hey, but uh, but as to do, if you are more curious on this, guys, uh, and you want to do learn more, I do suggest I did a lot of my studying watching James White, Jeff Durbin. Um, Doug Wilson was another one I was checking out. Uh, you know, those are, to me, it seemed like solid guys who are, uh, that you can learn from and you can trust that they're not trying to steer you in some crazy direction. No, not at all. Yeah. Um, so again, um, I'll just read the last little bit of Matthew 23. So, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I get, have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings? And yet you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So, if you read that literally. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is they did see him again, some of them. And he actually prophesied that they would. We'll get to that. Mm -hmm. um, so, 24. So, we just saw what happened there. The very next scene is Jesus and the disciples um, in view of the temple. So Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out the buildings. And he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be here one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. That one amongst all the views is an irrefutable prophecy that 70 AD does fulfill. Yes, and, that's not and I think every viewpoint holds to that. 
Yes, everyone knows that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, regardless of your eschatology, and that not one stone was left on another because all of the gold inlays between the bricks, they were taken apart, the gold was taken away. So mm -hmm. it was literally left desolate. Yep. So there's that. So then we really get into the meat of 24 here. So the next thing we have is he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is why this is known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What things? The things that we were just discussing at the end of 23 and of 24, at the beginning of 24. What, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And I want to I stop there for just a second because that word age translated is translated correctly. If it was end of the world or end of time, it would have been cosmos and it is aeon which is age. So that's something to keep in mind because the futurist view really sees it in, in much more ways as the end of the world or the end of time mm -hmm. because of its stretch and what occurs after a millennium. So, um, and Jesus answered them. So there's the question and here's Jesus's answer, which is pretty much the rest of the chapter. <laughs> See that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they would lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. We'll come back to that in a second. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So we'll stop there for half a second, because the wars and rumors of wars, you'll see people and their TikToks oh boy. pop that up there and just say, look at this, this is proof. Look, it's Russian. If, if there's one time where I really loathe my premillennial <laughs> view, it's that like it, 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 that's almost like a big turnoff is is the I call them, you know, prophecy watchers uh, and sensationalizing it. Yeah. And they're sensationalizing every little thing that happens and they'll they'll say, look, this is a sign that this is happening, you know, and, and they, they, they take it to a whole nother level i think and like you said sensationalizing it on something that honestly we have no control over whatsoever and, and this is where i kind of agree with the people where you know you always get in the discussion you pre-mill you post-mill you on-mill well i'm pan-mill it's all gonna pan out in the end anyway so you know I, I i really i really like i said i really do loathe that that over sensationalizing of the the, the pre-mill viewpoint and prophecy watching every two seconds oh, war is a rumor i i tell you what on my twitter feed i couldn't I, I almost got disgusted, actually, because, you know, there's people fighting and dying right now in a country for their lives, for their very life and their well-being. And people are using it as a as a uh, post to, to, to say, look, wars and rumors of wars. And, you know, like wars are literally going on across the world all the time. Throughout uh, the centuries. There's so never a, been a point in time in our life where a war has honestly not been going on. There's always time. been war, period. 100% agree. So then the question that you would ask is, why is Jesus saying this? So here's, and I didn't say this, I should have started with this, but the hermeneutic I take when reading scripture, the first thing you should think is, is who is the audience here? Who is this being either written to when you're talking about the epistles of Paul, or is this being spoken to by the person that's speaking? Mm -hmm. So this is Matthew recalling what Jesus said to them. Mm-hmm not looking down the corridors of time to me. So this isn't Jesus just saying it directly to me. And then how do I interpret that for me today? No, we need to, to look at it to what the intent was in the audience first, then look at how it would apply to us. Like you said, so that's, that's hermeneutics 101, hermeneutics. keeping everything in Absolutely. context. 
So hearing of wars and rumors of wars. So what would that have meant to a Roman citizen during that time? So if you, well, regardless of your history buff, it should have been something that was taught in school, and I hope it was. Um, but there's something called the Pax Romana. So Pax is Latin for peace, Romana being Rome, so the peace of Rome. So the way that Rome worked for any kind of uprisings, if there was anything that threatened the empire in some way, even even if it was somewhat small, it was immediately quashed, like without much mercy. Yeah, that was Rome. So for a long period of time, you saw peace by force, of course, but mm-hmm. people wouldn't rise up because of the fear of what would happen because you were against the largest empire on earth. Um, so hearing of wars and rumors of wars during that time would have been very bizarre. And when, of course, today, if we were to take that as we are, it's like, well, I can turn on whatever my favorite news channel is, and I can see of wars and rumors of wars every day, 24-7, mm-hmm. because that's that's not what was what was being discussed here, at least in my view. Um, so that's how I would interpret that. So now, don't be alarmed. Um, this must take place, nation against nation, all of that. So famines and earthquakes, there are recorded famines and earthquakes. Um, I, I won't get into all of that, but there, there were plenty of them, including Vesuvius later on. There were rumblings and earthquakes. Of course, there was the great earthquake when Jesus himself died. Um, And Josephus writes of the famines that were so severe that parents would actually kill their own children, eat them, and actually sell them to get money to buy food. That that was going on inside the 70 A.D. destruction, and and that's a a sad but very true point. If, if, If you guys haven't checked it out, you can find an audio version of it if you don't like reading. Check out, I believe it was Wars, we said, uh, by Josephus. Yeah, that, that it's very telling on uh, the what, right mood for it, though. Yeah, what was Stark. going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there was the Jewish, um, the, or there was the siege. I'm sorry. There was the Jewish revolt, um, which Syria coming from the north, uh, that was the 64 to 67, 68 time frame. And then the second three and a half years of the tribulation was the actual Jewish war, which was Rome. Um, so I won't get into all of that, um, which I certainly could, but there's, uh, for time's sake, I'll just keep uh, rolling with it a bit here. Um, so here, here's, so uh, 24-9, we'll just start there. So then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the glove of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So here we see a timeline um, where you will see the tribulation described, then you see the gospel of the kingdom proclaimed to the whole world, and then you see the end. Mm-hmm. You don't see the tribulation and then the end, and then the gospel spread. Or the gospel is spread, then the tribulation, and then the end. This is the timeline here, at least if you interpret it that way, where post-mill lines up the most, actually the most literal if you're looking at it in terms of um, order of which it was spoken. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I do believe I think when you actually add up the math, because the tribulation—if you're—if you're pre-trib, you you understand what the tribulation is—that seven-year period. Uh, the the amount of time that this was kind of going on, some of the math 
uh, like I said, correct me if I'm wrong, because I didn't study up enough in it, you know, that, that Daniel talks about in his tribulation, sure. you know, actually can be equated to what was going on in this period of time in Jerusalem sure. with these uh, rebellions and then destruction and then the some of the stuff that led into afterwards. Have you have you seen that to be true, like the yeah. time periods? No, I, I see it lining up quite perfectly. That seven year that the Primo will talk about or a futurist would talk about um, lines up just perfectly. It's 64 to 70 AD. In the three and a half year mark, you see Nero, which uh, he's the one I view as the little beast of Revelation. Um, futurists call him Antichrist, but that actually isn't in Revelation. Um, many Antichrists are talked about throughout Matthew. That's uh, We actually already mentioned it one time. Yeah, John so even says that, talks about anybody yeah. who really, you know, preaches against Christ is an Antichrist. Exactly right. Yep. Um, but the, when we're talking about the little beast, the one that's clearly personified as a person in Revelation, um, I see that as Nero. Um, Nero was injured and survived, um, and then he did end up uh, committing suicide. Um, all of those things happen in the timeline that a futurist would say the Antichrist would. would, would that, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask was, yeah, how would you you talk about that? You know, because we obviously see that the Antichrist was, you know, he gets some mortal wound we see in Revelation, and then he's, for the lack of better terms, almost like resurrected the the false prophet, you know, makes a beast in his image and then gets that to talk. While I would, you know, if you talk to maybe an extreme futurist, they'll say, oh, this is talking about how a robot can be the Antichrist, you know, and all this type of stuff. Like, how would you, right. I guess, talk about so, that that's, you know, in Revelation? The thing is, is Domitian was actually sent out as, um, uh, what was the term? It's priority. I forget the Latin phrase for it, but he was actually a representative of it. So some people would say that that's it. And that, that'll actually tie into what I'm going to talk about um, with one of the church fathers saying that John wrote it during the time of Domitian, which that one erroneous statement is why a lot of future church fathers, by quoting it, hold to the writing of Revelation in the 90s when Domitian was the actual Caesar. But he actually was the praetor of Nero in the in the early or the late 60s and early 70s ad so a lot of people think that he was actually referring to that time uh, but but we'll, we'll get to that um but no the timelines especially from daniel line up uh, just fine um especially when you're talking about the four beasts um that you see in uh daniel um uh, and i see those as the four empires including babylon um following or is it five oh, it's five isn't it <laughs> um so you got um let's see Babylon, Medo-Persia, no, Syria, Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great, and then Rome. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's right. And then um, the last one, of course, also talks about the little beast and the ten, uh, the ten horns and the little horn. We'll, we'll get into that again later. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> jump, you know, and that's something that, like you said, in the uh, literal context, you know, having a hard time actually thinking about and seeing. Uh, so, but then so, yeah. it would make more sense in a symbolic type style like you were explaining, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, so now we'll get into meat of it. So what I want to do is flip between Matthew 24 and Luke 21, because to us Gentiles, Luke 21, uh, reads a little easier <laughs> for us. Mm -hmm. Um, now of course, uh, Matthew mentions Daniel, which is important. Um, so that's good that you brought it up. So I'll just read from, um, uh, verse 15 here. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
and let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one in his field not go back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that women who, I'm sorry, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets, plural, will arrive, arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, here he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there's the vultures will gather. So a lot of a lot of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is clearly talking about the tribulation, regardless of your view. Um, this is that's what this is. Um, so here's the things I want to point out from here, and then we'll look at Luke 21. So when he says the abomination of desolation, which to us Gentiles doesn't mean a lot, but it's a desecration of the Holy Land essentially. It's that's the mainstay of what that is is interpreted as. Um, but at Luke 21 makes that much more clear. So rather than it being the entire world, it's more so a microcosm of, of Jerusalem. Yes, the judgment of Jerusalem and Israel specifically being the covenant breakers. And that gets into the the prostitute of, um, or the whore of Babylon, if you will, in, the, in Revelation. Well, when it, whenever you see that um, symbolism used in the, the Old Testament, who is it always referring to? It's always referring to Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't see a reason why it wouldn't refer to them in Reve- Revelation. Um, but yeah, so then in 16 it says, when this is happening, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So if this was a world event, what would it matter if you were in Judea fleeing to which mountains? I mean, if you're in Antarctica, which that's a dumb analogy, but there aren't any mountains to, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's very specific as to what it's talking about. And, and also, we actually do we have historical accounts, to your point, that, that do show that that's what the people were doing. They were trying to get out of the gates. They were running from the city walls, hiding in caves. I mean, look at where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. I know that was more close around the time of Jesus, but, you know, people were running and hiding out uh, yes. and, and fleeing for their lives. And some of those were run on the ones that the Jews, especially that were a lot of them were the the non-believers and they were soldiers. Um, There's some famous um, fights at the tops of mountains where the Romans just came right up after them and took and took them out. Oh, yeah, I think that was actually like one of the last great sieges that 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 happened. And everybody ended up actually killing them. I can't remember the name of the mountain. I think it was 73 A.D. Uh, But, yeah, yeah, they they um, from an aftermath. Yeah, I'm an army guy, so like I appreciate uh, you know tactical tactics. style warfare and the way the Romans ha- had their tactics of actually penetrating this defensible, this super defensible mountaintop. You know, was was amazing. And when they finally got up there, everybody essentially killed themselves because they knew it was coming. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of we history actually, points, but, uh, you know, like and I, and I know I don't sound like a. a, a, a mill guy right now but a lot of history does point uh to these signs being true they're they're real i can admit that that a lot of these line up really well with the historical records that we have today 
Right. And that's just intellectual honesty. Whether you end up believing in the post mill view or not, that's fine. But at least when when you hear the evidences, at least, and I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying this to everyone, Mm -hmm. at least have the honesty to listen to it and go, okay, what can let, let's think about that for a second and see if it might be right because that that process is what finally led me to it because I was very resistant to change my to break my tradition of decades of believing in this in the pre mill uh, pre trib or even post trib futurist view um, was because this was so vastly different than what I'd ever heard before mm-hmm. but then when I saw all these evidences lining up and and saw how it related to scripture specifically I was like it really looks like it's here. I got to keep digging. Um, but I do want to look at Luke 21. So this same passage. Um, so this is a 2120. So here, instead of it saying the abomination of desolation, it says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are mm. inside the city depart. And then much of the language is quite the same, but he's very clear as to what that is when you see Jerusalem specifically surrounded by armies. And that, that happened multiple times throughout the 64 to 70 AD range because you had Syria coming in from the north during the Jewish revolt. And then finally, when it got so serious, they um, Nero is just like, oh, I'm done, send everybody in. And then they start really hammering down. So the Jews were being oppressed um, more by Rome later um, and the Christians were the ones being oppressed before that. Mm-hmm. And that's when we see the history of, uh, if you've ever heard of a Roman candle, most people just associate that with a firework. Mm-hmm. What a Roman candle actually was, was a, a, a pole or a stake with a person on it, tied up, covered in tar and lit on fire. And Nero would have a forest of these to light his dinner parties. Yep. The dude was a nightmare. Yeah, you know, he, it, and it's very real on how he could be viewed like the oh, yeah. Antichrist described. Like you said, he did that. He fed Christians to lions in the Colosseum. Uh, yes. all, all of these just horrible, horrible things that were going on around that time. And you can understand, it's hard in our, our sheltered, especially if you're living here in America. I know we've got some people that live out in foreign countries that, that listen to this. But in America, we're very sheltered, and it's easy to get into this mindset of you know oh that you know we can't really picture that but that was going on that was real uh and and that had to be some of the worst stuff that anybody has ever gone through yeah and and what's important to think about the reason that's important and i I brought up when certain things were happening is because you saw the jews openly persecuting christians of course in the epistles of paul I mean, the poor man's back must have just looked like, you know, a map of a mountainside before he died. But you see that up until the point where then the Jews are being pushed back, too. Well, in Revelation, it looks like they're just comfortably doing their thing for the most part because they're adhering to Rome. They're submitting to Rome up until the point where they're not. And then, of course, things go very much south for them. But the reason that we see the whore of Babylon, all of, all of that is because it's talking about they're submitting to Rome and the beast, the, the main beast of revelation we view as Rome and mm-hmm. the little beast being Nero. Who, um, who would be the false prophet? Just curious in that view then. That, that's the thing. A lot of people say beast is antichrist. Little beast is false prophet. I don't view there being a false prophet because that's not really listed in that same kind of verbiage. So I just see it as being Rome and then the little beast being Nero. 
Okay. That's that's terminology that was kind of just placed upon some of the symbolism. At least that's how I've I've seen it. No, yeah, that that I don't fair see point. There being a specifically a one person that's a personified false prophet. Mm -hmm. And that goes that. in with the like you said, with like looking at it from a more spiritual aspect rather than a literal. If you don't know yeah. what we're talking about, we, we're I know we're jumping all over scripture. That uh, we're we're just kind of jumping back and forth between Revelation and Matthew, and now we're in Luke. So. If you if you're yeah. keeping up, <laughs> yeah. doing doing my best to try and keep it in, in a row as best. No, I I'm probably not helping by jumping back and forth. <laughs> yeah, you have to jump around because it, it, they're not all in just in one place. Like people would say, oh, you can just read Revelation and get the whole picture, and you really cannot. Because nope. if you don't have any kind of mental framework from the Old Testament, like you really don't have any business reading Revelation until you've read the Old Prophets, because mm -hmm. that's where. That's where the hermeneutic as to how to understand Revelation comes from. Well, it's gonna, yeah, it's gonna be a confusing mess. I remember being a, a little kid uh, listening to the Alexander Scorvey King James Version audio Bible and listening to the Book of Revelation at the age of like seven years old and just like being freaked out because I had no idea what was going yeah. on. <laughs> Yeah, you just like imagine some actual dragon in the sky with like a hydra with ten heads. And <laughs> yep. Some of them have horns and some don't. It's just yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in Matthew. Um, and the reason I'm going to skip it is because 29 through um, 31, it gets into symbolism. And just for time's sake, I'm trying to, to keep it till a post-millennial view, not each individual instance and in how to exegete it. Mm -hmm. So just for time's sake, I want to move on to um, an important statement that, that, again, reiterates the timing of this. So once we get into the lesson of the fig tree, which is important because we're talking about the grafting in, mm -hmm. um, this is symbolic of that as well. But so in 34, in Matthew 24, 34, Jesus says this for the second time tonight that we've read it. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So a very important statement. Again, who is he talking to the disciples at that time? not looking down the corridors of time and talking to us directly. Because mm -hmm. what I hear sometimes futurists say is like, oh, well, Jesus was talking about this generation, meaning this generation, the one in the future. Why would he be saying that to the disciples who asked him this question? When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Mm -hmm. Aeon, not cosmos. So the end of the age, especially if you're like me and you believe in covenant theology, the, the 70 AD, the, and I know people would bring up the, the World War II Holocaust as being a horrific time for Jews. I 100% agree it was. But was it the most traumatic for them spiritually? No. It was the destruction of that entire, temple. Their entire mosaic history was just destroyed and still to today has never been restored. Mm -hmm. People would say, oh, look, Israel was restored as a nation. No. They're a nation— but they're not a spiritual Israel like that anymore. No, they're not making they sacrifices in the temple. and yeah. They cannot pro properly today practice the Mosaic Law because there are no sacrifices. And they have to try and rabbinically talk their way around that to try and make it like everything's fine, and it's just not. Yeah, you, that was the most traumatic experience. And, and over a million Jews still died during that time per Josephus. Yeah, no, so it, it's yeah. just a body counting. It's still pretty horrific. Oh, yeah. And like you said, it, it, it was traumatic for them because their entire way of life, the way they worship God, their sacrificial system, everything was destroyed. Yes. 
And they haven't been able to go back to that ever since, even to this day. And that's why you see these, you know, groups like the Temple Institute popping up and, you know, trying to get the temple rebuilt. And you even have some people desperate saying, oh, well, the temple wasn't actually on the mount. It was over here. So we can rebuild it over here. You know, and that's a lot of stuff that the, uh, I guess you would say the prophecy watchers, you know, often talk about too. I've ran into a few of those in my time. (laughs) That's fair. Um, So I'm just kind of taking a quick look at my notes here. Um, I did have some notes for 29. Um, I got into a little bit of Greek word study, but um, I I don't want to, I don't want to go too crazy for, for people. Um, It is important to look at the, it's important to look at these words because and I'm uh, hopefully I'm not insulting anybody's intelligence listening to this because if you're listening you probably already got an understanding of this but you know the, the Bible is translated in a way in which our Western minds can try to understand it when it really it's an Eastern style written book and it's important to actually go through when we're doing a deep dive study look up the words in the Greek in the Hebrew you know the, even if you can't get a fancy you know bdag for four hundred dollars you can you can get a strong's concordance for free on the bible internet hub. you know bible hub's fantastic bible hub an amazing app i love Early using year, it you get a concordance i used that when i was doing the defense against some of the torah observance claiming that the shema when it says uh our god is one that that means that unitarianism has to be true and i'm like well that word echad actually is a pluralistic unity and it's used in multiple places in the old testament almost in a pluralistic unity sense all the time Mm -hmm. so that one word study decimates the whole argument for that specific instance Mm -hmm. which is why like we said it's important to look this stuff up you know yeah um so all what i'll do i'll ask you since uh, you're the bus driver here so I do have some stuff where I could get into some more interpretation of what we're seeing through Matthew 24. Um, but the next section I have is what you'd asked about earlier about when Revelation was written. And in fairness, if people do want to go to my YouTube and look there, in my eschatology section, I have an exegesis of Matthew 24 in its entirety. I have an internal reasons why Revelation was written pre-70 AD and external as two separate videos. Um, so there's plenty of content if you want to deep dive further, uh, because I know that I could sit here and talk Matthew 24 for hours. So I do want to make sure that we're um, keeping this as bite-sized as we can. So um, did you want to m- move on to the next, or did you did you have any questions in Matthew 24 that you want to make sure we hit on? Uh, not specifically, no. I mean, I got some stuff for the end, but not not you know uh, taken away. Okay. Like I said, that mainly I want people to understand is. One, this isn't a debate, and two, this is, you know, just understanding the post-mill side. So if you want to keep going on and you want to keep adding to it, by all means, do it. Worst case, I can just split this up into two episodes. Well, I'll, we'll try and prevent it if we can. Um, so I'll, I'll go ahead and move on to uh, the next uh, section. So if, if Revelation was not written pre-70 AD as a warning to the Christians of the time, a lot of post-mill kind of starts to fall apart in a way. I mean, there is still history, of course, which there's plenty of evidence there. It really is um, the hinge point, like when was it written? It yeah. Yeah. So um, so I'm going to give you two external sources and kind of the reasoning as to why the 90s um, view exists um, and tell you why I disagree. <laughs> yeah. um, so again, uh, the source... The source, a good source for this will be that before Jerusalem fell by Dr. Kenneth Gentry Jr. Um, he goes into way more depth than I'm about to. But um, So Irenaeus, 
Um, so he wrote this um, 180 to 190 AD. This is in book five of Against Heresies. Um, and I will say important church father, um, huge warrior against heresies. So I don't mean to detract from his work in any way. Um, I just disagree with one of the things um, that is, it's either an interpretation thing or it was a, a miswriting, but we'll see, we'll see what you think. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, so he was known to have kind of an erroneous statement about a, a couple of inconsistencies in his writing. Um, one of, one was the age of Jesus. He was putting weird age and timelines as to when he was around. Not sure why, but we'll leave that alone for now. Um, but he places the re- the writing of Revelation under the reign of Domitian, um, which, again, I mentioned this earlier. Um, he It might have been a mistaken by people interpreting what he wrote as the actual Caesarship of Domitian, where he was actually ruling, um, instead of when he um, briefly reigned for Vespasian. In, uh, I said Nero earlier, it was Vespasian, in 70 AD, when he had full consular authority um, and that's imperial consular, so I was close. <laughs> so d- just to, because to, I'm not 100% amazing at my history. So essentially, prior to the 70 AD destruction, you have Nero. He is the Caesar. He is the ruler of the Roman Empire. He he dies. And then you had like a succession of like three or, I can't remember, it was like three or four different emperors yep. until it was yep. finally established by the person who was actually originally leading the 70 AD destruction, and then he left it up one to his generals. son. Yeah, one of his sons became, yeah, yeah and, and that's yep. what led up to that. So if, am I correct in that? Yep, you nailed it. Okay. And that's and, and all the talks when it says um, time and a short of time and an hour and all of those things that you see in Revelation, that's what it was referring to, mm-hmm. was those short little reigns after the death of Nero and the chaos of his, of an actual Caesar dying, and then Vespasian in 70 AD um, gave imperial consular priorship um, rights to Domitian. And then later, you know, 20 some odd years later, Domitian actually reigns as the seizure. 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Tacitus actually later writes in histories that before Vespasian came to Rome to assume power, Caesar Domitian received priorship and his name was prefixed to epistles and edicts. So that is not a guess. There is actual historical documents of edicts and, and epistles written while he was under that um, titleship. So mm-hmm. that's not a, a like a debated thing among historians. That That's actual fact. That's like you can put that in stone. Now, what, whether or not that's the interpretation is, is up for, you know, debate. But what, one thing I wanted to interject just so people know. Uh, so to, I know Josephus wasn't, but uh, I'm pretty sure Tacitus wasn't either. You know, these two men were historians and they were not skewed from a christian standpoint you know that we're, right. we're, we don't ha- have any reason to believe that these men were christians uh no. so that's why a lot of historians can take what they say as fact because they're not coming from a skewed point like oh well they obviously read the bible and just wrote this in here and All tried right. to uh, push their agenda like no they were they were not of this agenda so that's that's right and 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 um uh, Josephus was actually a, a Jewish general. Mm-hmm. Um, he was captured by Rome, and instead of them killing him, they had him work for Rome as a historian. I mean, he was definitely not a Christian. No, um, but he was there on the Roman t- side during the 70 AD destruction, which is how he recorded everything. Right. And the other part, and you mentioned his biases. So he actually talked about Jesus in his writings as well. It was histories, and- right? And a, um, it was uh, Wars. Wars, oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, six six books, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
and he and he talks about Jesus and what was said about him and affirms a lot of the things that were said that were claims of the disciples. Now he didn't affirm them himself. He just said these were the claims and they seem to be um, to be very true um, because they died for their beliefs. And that's where th- those writings are where we know where what happened to a lot of the disciples. Like mm-hmm. the Bible doesn't tell us that John was boiled in oil or that um, Peter was crucified upside down or that Paul was beheaded. We don't know that from the Bible. We know that from outside sources. Yep. So it's a very interesting thing to, to point out. Um, so uh, we were talking Irenaeus. Um, so so the view of a post mill in, in this particular instance is that it could have been either Irenaeus mis, like miswrote it and he, he put it um, under uh, Domitian rather than Vespasian, or it was just a misinterpretation of what he meant. So he was actually writing about the preordership or the imperio consular, um, and they took it as them meaning the later reign of Domitian. Um, and here's another thing, and I just, just to, I put it in here just as a note. So Irenaeus was in Lyons, which was very far away from the ecclesiastical tradition of the time. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't able, when he was writing, to go over to a buddy and go, hey, is this right what I'm talking to? Like he didn't have that iron sharpening iron thing. Um, that they enjoyed in other areas where there were more um, dense populations of uh, church leaders. Um, One thing for people, and I think I've explained it in the prior, just to know Irenaeus, he actually, you can connect Irenaeus all the way back to uh, John. And that's another reason why we can trust Irenaeus' writings, because there's a clear link between John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. Uh, yeah. So, unless I got any of that wrong, let me know if I did. But uh, just know, origins. Uh, so John to Polycarp to Origin to Irenaeus, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so th- there's a yeah. but bottom line is what we're saying. There, there's a line. These people weren't just making stuff up, stuff up, you know, based off of reading certain verses of the Bible. Like this was orally passed down, and you can't underestimate the oral tradition, uh, especially of of Jews and people around in that time. Not everybody wrote. Not everybody was able to read. The oral tradition was very, very uh, big, and it was also very, very accurate because they took that stuff very seriously. But anyways, I didn't want to yeah. interrupt. <laughs> oh, no, perfect. Yeah, that's 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 definitely right on. Um, so the, the next one I wanted to talk okay. about was Eusebius. So, um, and I'm only going to talk about two for just this one instance because, again, this is really the source of where that 90s AD writing comes from. It's just church fathers looking back and, oh, what did they say? Oh, it looks like Irenaeus here said um, during Domitian. When was Domitian? 90s AD. And they just copied and paste, um, which is fair. That happens a lot. Um, so Eusebius um, took Irenaeus's writings, compounded it um, in either a misunderstanding or an inconsistency of the chain of custody from John's polycopter origin to Irenaeus, is exactly what we mentioned a moment ago. Um and he's inconsistent on the age of John during the writing. So here's where one of the age things kind of starts to be weird. Because Eusebius talks about this story. And this is an exciting one. You're going to like this if you haven't heard it before. So in apparently after the writing of Revelation, um, John on horseback chases down an apostate pastor and like basically hog ties him and gives him, you know, the business you know, yelling and screaming at him. 90 year old John so, running on a horse. No. <laughs> 90. So you've heard this. So a 90 year old man had a John Wayne moment, or if it was written in the early sixties, you have 
a 60-year-old John, still a feat for someone who's in their 60s, but I guarantee you can go to Texas and find a 60-year-old man roping calves. Oh, yeah. Like it's nobody's business. So much more feasible if this is true. Now, granted, this is an anecdotal story, and it's not scripture, so we don't, we can't take it as infallible. But it is an interesting anecdote. And that inconsistency, because Eusebius was claiming after having read, read from Irenaeus that it was from the 90s, he was saying, yeah, well, this 90-year-old John did this, I think. <laughs> so something interesting. Um, the other thing to note, because this is also some inconsistencies here, is Eusebius talks about the execution of Peter and Paul in the very same sentence that he talks about John being exiled to Patmos. And those two dying was certifiably under the, the reign of Nero. Nero is mm-hmm. the one that killed them. They, that is... Um, Peter being hung upside down, and that is Paul being beheaded. Yep, that is a historical fact. That yeah, that really was no underneath one... Nero's reign. Yeah, so Eusebius talks about all of that in the same sentence. So if that was twenty some odd years later, why would he say it in the same sentence? Again, anecdotal. You can't really. That's not a smoking gun, but it's still an evidence that you have to consider when you're looking at these. Um, so a couple of other, um, and again. A, the book would, would tell you more, um, but other uh, church fathers who agreed and supported a pre-70 AD writing would be um, Epiphanius, Jerome, Theophylact, and Erethus, to name a few of the earliest church fathers. So, biblical evidences. So, um, I'll just kind of just run through these real quick real because quick, I do want to get to um, Revelation, which I'm sure you do as well. Um, so, a couple of just little nuggets, if you want to say that. Um, so the language used in Revelation indicates a younger John before his mastery of the coin in Greek was evidenced further in his writing of the gospel and his epistles. So that's something to note. Um, the existence of just the seven churches mentioned in Asia Minor mm. also indicate an earlier date, as by the end of the century there was a much deeper expansion into that region. And just want to note one thing. So those, those seven churches that are mentioned and the order in which they were mentioned um, was a known Roman postal route. Oh, so the see, I didn't know that. The listed in Revelation is the actual route that the messenger would have gone through to deliver that um, letter, and then later on down into um, you know the Middle East there as to where they would go. So it's a really cool thing I, I read about. Um, uh, so here's another point. The activity of the Judaizing heretics in Revelation 2 through 3 also indicate an earlier date. If it was in the 90s, Paul's letters would have been circulated for more than 30 years, maybe not more than, but about 30 years. And these practices should have fallen away, as history indicates it did. So Galatians would be one of the biggest ones of that, mm-hmm. um, where they, he really hits hard the, the Judaizing practices. Um, but in the early 60s, they are still a viable issue. So in historical context, this places it um, before or shortly after Paul's death, which was 64 to 65 AD. So that timing is, is just about right. And and just for the sake of saying, so I'm, I'm thinking 63 AD, that's kind of where I'm throwing the, the writing of Revelation. It might have been a little earlier, but I, I tend to think it's just a right before, like a very eminent thing, because the language of Revelation sounds so eminent. So yep. just run that there. <laughs> um the prominence of the Jewish persecutions of Christians in Revelation 6 and 11 indicate the relative safety of the Jews in their land and the freedom and power they enjoyed. So if it was in the 90s, 
Um, this was not the case as the Jews were decimated and scattered all over the place at that point. Um, so that, that, that slice of life, if you want to call it that, would mm -hmm. have been very inconsistent with that time period if John had written it during the 90s. It would have looked a lot different. And plus there's a temple, so there's that. <laughs> yeah. That's the biggest smoking gun for that claim, um, if you're taking the, the post no view. Um, which I'll, that's exactly what my next point was, so I'll go ahead and skip that one. Um, and then, of course, uh, Revelation 17 notes the reign of the sixth emperor, which the sixth emperor would be Nero, um, and indicates a date in the AD 60s in reference to Rome, which um, that whole thing about the beast uh, is, is heavily tied to the partial preterist view as to who the beast or what the beast was and then who the little beast was. Um, so those are some of, that's just a very quick little rapid fire of why um, we would believe that uh, Revelation was written earlier rather than later. Mm -hmm. And it was written as a warning. And it was heated because there were a lot of Christians, like we talked about earlier, that made their way uh, to Pella and fled and, and, and Messianic Jews as well um, to safety. So for Revelation specifically, then, uh, you know, we call it apocalyptic literature. <clears throat> Uh, and we understand it as that. So obviously we, we already know that you would view a lot of these things that are happening as spiritual. So when you see things such as mountains being removed, uh, islands being completely wiped off, things that we, we read in Revelation that seem like very cataclysmic world events, you would view this, view this still as the microchasm of, of Jerusalem, of Israel. Verbally. Yeah. And there were, I mean, there were earthquakes that happened around that time. I mean, you had Vesuvius erupt. Now that was after 70 AD, but she certainly had early pangs of that beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, and famines and there were earthquakes. So an island being kind of decimated or leveled certainly could have happened as well. Um, but as far as a, a literal mountain being thrown into the sea, um, what would maybe that mountain represent? Could it have been Zion as it was seen by Israel? Mm -hmm. And why would it be thrown into the sea? Well, the beast comes from the sea, and who took over that mountain? That would have been Rome. Mm -hmm. So in symbolic figurative language, because one thing to note is, is that when John was writing this, it's my view that he wrote it in such a way where if a Roman soldier were to take this and go, oh, um, Nero Caesar is Antichrist, and Jesus will come back and destroy him. Like if it was written out like crystal clear like that, the Romans would have just decimated everyone. Mm -hmm. They would have come through the Christians. And actually, hiding. You, you bring up a good point that, uh, you know, was interesting in my studies when I was going through uh, the whole post-mill viewpoint. So explain to me the correlation between how we get the mark of the beast and Caesar, uh, specifically Nero and his name. If you want to elaborate on that for people, 666 or the mark, uh, 666 oh. specifically and, and get into yeah. the mark because th this is one of those things that you do see from the, the pre-mill side of the camp, you know, beware of taking the mark, you know, you had some of those extremists trying to say the vaccines, the mark of the beast, which, you know, even me as a pre-mill guy oh. completely reject, uh, oh, you know, okay. and all these other, you know, everyone's always looking for, oh, it's going to be a microchip in the hand or this or that, and just trying to speculate and all these things. Uh, but I do know the the post mill side, and I won't. I can't do it justice talking about it. But I know you can. Uh, so if you can give an explanation on what you view the six 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 to represent, as well as you know what that mark of the beast is, because I, I do believe it's an interesting standpoint and uh, historically correct. If you if the argument that you're going to use is the one that I read also. 
I assume the the Gamatri, are you right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the um the codex kind of a thing. So so it is so just so everyone knowing, um most people well I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people will say six six six. It actually if you read scripture it does not say that, it says six hundred and sixty-six. It's a very important distinction because the way that the numbers add up in this um, codex um, is where we get the the translation of it from. Um, so without getting into too far of it, um, let me just go back just a, a little bit here. Um, so we see the these gamatri or math it, that basically means mathematics um, used in other things besides and it's in Latin, it's in Greek. We see that in other languages. In Vesuvius, we actually did find one. It was a cryptogram. Um, the grief ins- inscription was, I love her whose number is 545. Um, so whoever that who would have known what to look for could have added the numbers up of their name, and, and that would have been what it would have added to. Um, so that very same principle is used. Um, it's also in the um, Sibylline Oracles. We find another instance of that. And that one we actually find out that Jesus's number is 888 or 888 which hmm. is interesting. Never looked into that, um, yeah. So, so the, the ancient Hebrew one, so um, what I'll do is I'll just kind of hold this up to the screen because I don't know um, how to pronounce each of the letters. So I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar um, or a Greek scholar, but here's what you have. Um, for you people just listening in, you got to go to his YouTube for this, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll be posting our conversation to YouTube. So basically, if you take each of the letters, and it would be in, if you're looking at it in English, N-R-W-N-Q-S-R, which would be Neron Caesar. Neron Caesar, yep. Yep. Um, and that's, the first letter would be 50, the second 200, the third 6, the fourth 50, the fifth is 100, the sixth is 60, and the last is 200, and it adds up to 666. Yeah, and this is um, just so his not- his name, Neron Caesar, not Neron Augustus, blah, 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 all the middle names in there. So here's the other thing. Now, we don't see that as a physical mark. We don't see that as something that's not figurative. And I can can show you the opposite of that as to why I believe that. So we're going to go all the way back to the good old Old Testament, to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 6, we find something that every Jew and their brother would know by memory because they recite it daily and it is known as the Shema. So, mm. uh, Revel- or I'm sorry, Revelation. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And here we go. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes on your forehead. So what we see in Revelation is the opposite of what we see in the Shema. So that were these literal markings on their hands and foreheads? No, it was a spiritual mark that they are of God. So circumcision would have been the physical outward sign. And of course, in the New Testament, um, which I would posit that baptism is the new circumcision. That is the outward sign in the new covenant of your outward expression of the faith. Mm-hmm. Or if you believe in pedobaptism, your acceptance into the um, the covenant body of Christ. But again, that's a whole other uh, podcast. Yeah, you don't want to trigger all the presbys out there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so that's one of the things I disagree on with my church, but it's not salvific and it's secondary, so there's no harm. Everybody affirms credo baptism. Mm-hmm. If you're an adult and believe in Christ, you should be baptized, and it's an outward sign of faith. Nobody disagrees with that, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope not. I would hope. Um, so that would be what I would say about the— it. So long story short, it's nothing to worry about, because if you're a believer— and, and especially if you believe that once you're in Christ's hands that he will deliver you to the Father, it's not going to happen. It's the same argument that you would make about um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yep. If you're a believer, you're not going to do that. You shouldn't mm-hmm. sit in fear going, what if I say this wrong? That's not how he wants you to live. I, I can't remember. That's not how the Bible is, consist- is, in con- or is consistent that that's not how it's going to be. Through, through, through life and like in ministry and stuff, like I, I've— I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that question. Someone would come across either blaspheming the Holy Spirit or what if I accidentally received the mark or, you know, or something like that. I'm like, number one, it's impossible. If you are elect, if you believe in God, he is your Lord, your Savior. You know, if, if you affirm all of that, that is impossible for you to ever fall away like God's not going to go. Oops! Well, you took the mark. You were saved, but hey, I'm sorry, you buddy. You know, flesh, but I guess you took your heart of stone back from me. Yeah, because you have that much power as a human. It, yeah, John six and John seventeen really drive that home. Oh yeah, exactly. It, because at the end of the day, the and like I know people will disagree, but I really don't know how you can argue the fact that you know once you're gods i mean you can make the argument that you were gods from before the very foundation of the world because that's what the bible says but if you're saved you're saved for period like there is no nothing you can do and like you said john 6 john 10 you know there's nothing that anyone could ever do to pull you out of god's arms and that means yourself as well you can't walk away from that and if you walk away we already have first john 2 19 that says they walk away because they were never actually one of them So don't ever get, if you're a pre-mill person listening to this and you're curious, you know, don't ever fall into that fear trap of what if I accidentally received the mark of the beast or something crazy like that. It's, it's impossible. If you're saved, you're, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to perish, period. That's, that's the easiest way to put it. Well, you can't be possessed either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, and I, and I, and I, <laughs> I hold think it. That a lot of the passages you used um, in an attempt to refute the idea of, of perseverance of the saints, or once they've always said, whatever you want to call it, um, preservation of the saints, I think is how R.C. Spool said it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, most of those are, are probably talking about sanctification and exhorting you to live um, toward holiness and, and working with the Holy Spirit in sanctification to be conformed to the image of Christ, not that that's what saves you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an important distinction. I mean, we're not making it salvific in the, in the idea but if that's putting works into your salvation in some way, and that's always a dangerous thing. Exactly. And that's the thing that, that separates us from um, from Rome. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yep. 100%. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of the end of what I have, uh, at least in, in brief uh, context for um, for that. So the last thing I wanted to hit on was um, was Revelation and. Um, Obviously not the whole book, um, but what I wanted to hit on was... Now we really could probably turn this into a, a two-month series um, if we wanted to go verse yeah, by verse I mean, through Revelation. You uh, Doug Wilson. I do have his commentary right here, and I also have R.C. Sproul's. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, could, we could be here all day for sure. Um, but what I want to emphasize is the theme of Revelation. Um, and really, we can see 
in one verse, um, a lot of the theme of Revelation and, and the questions about timing here, and that's Revelation 1-7. So I'll just read it in a row, and then we'll kind of break it down. Now, I will say this. I'm not a fan of taking one verse and trying to cherry-pick stuff. That's not what we're doing here. We're doing a word study, so it's mm -hmm. a different thing. Um, feel free to read this in context because I'm not taking it out of context. <laughs> um, so it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. So I'm reading out of the ESV. You'll see some differentiation in other um, translations, but I'm going to go straight to the Greek here um, because that's what it was written. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so behold, he is coming with the clouds. So most instances that we see of coming on the clouds is indicative of God's holiness and righteousness in reference to judgment. Um, I could give you a laundry list of, uh, I'll just give you a couple here. Genesis 15, 17, Exodus 13, uh, 19, Deuteronomy 4, Psalm 18, 97, 104, Isaiah 19, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, Nahum 1, Zephaniah 1. There's a lot, um, and that's just a couple of them. Um, this is also reflected of what was said by Jesus in Matthew 24. So when we talk about the cloud coming, a post mill will see that as Jesus coming in judgment, like we see reflected on from the Old Testament on the covenant-breaking Jerusalem. So there's point one. Um, now it says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So here's a question. Who pierced Christ? The Romans. There's two children. <laughs> there's one. The other is the Jews. So who mm -hmm. literally pierced him with the spear? Yes, it was, it was the Romans. But the Jews are the ones who sought to have him killed, paid to have him captured, testified falsely against him, turned him over to the Roman Romans, yeah. as far as the side of things goes but literally of course yes it was the romans who physically put him on the cross um, and actually and that man repented uh which is awesome of that which I, I really i didn't want to segue off that but that was one of my favorite like overlooked Very stories cool. now all right good <laughs> so yeah so jesus um jesus also says a pilot uh he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin and that's john 19 11. so it's very clear really who the fault lies um was was the jews who rejected him which of course was prophesied all over the place um and really hopefully none of christianity really refutes that um so here i wanted to get into so tribes of the earth that's that's where we get into something interesting here so sometimes it says people of the earth um, but the, the literal translation is tribes, and then the Greek word ges, G-E-S, with the little line above, um, for earth, really could be translated land. And most commonly, you would associate land with the promised land. So a better rendering of this might be the tribes of the land or the tribes of the promised land um, will mourn or will wail on account of him, which is consistent with what we see before that. Um, even those who pierced him. And who are those who pierced him? It was the tribes of the promised land, which was the Jews, especially the leaders of the Jews. Um, so that's a very important thing to uh, to take a look at there. Uh, Phili is the Greek word used for tribes, and it usually does reference uh, Jewish tribes. Um, so that alone gives you an idea of the theme of what's about to happen here. So that there, Jesus is coming on the clouds in judgment, on the covenant-breaking Jerusalem, uh, every eye, even those who pierced him, 
and the tribes of the promised land will wail on account of him. So that's just one um, chunk here. Um, so the other one I wanted to throw out there was Daniel 7. We can get into this if you want to. Um, this is talking about the five beasts. We actually did hit on that a little earlier. Um, talking about the different types of metal and through, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, please, please do, because there might be people that's not actually familiar with this at all. So that it's a good point to bring up. Yeah. And the re I guess the, one of the reasons I brought it up is because of the, the lions and the wings. There was an eagle thing. Um, people are associating some of this prophecy with America. I just want to throw out there, guys, America's not in the Bible. Yeah, I know. I, just, uh, there's I, things I, that apply to Americans as terms of, as like all people, but... I just I don't see that in either the the, the futurist or my view of post mill. It's, it's not. It's just not. It's, it's not in there. And obviously, I, I could be wrong, but that is one of those things that once again with the the pre mill side where they are constantly trying to find America inside, especially those who really believe like America replaced Jerusalem. And those guys get on a whole nother level, and you get in the Christian nationalism yeah. and all that stuff. And ugh. Oh, I'm not on that train. No. Even a little. No, not at all. <laughs> um, oh, cool. So, yeah, if you're on board, I'll go through it quick. So, um, so again, what's the context here? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Mm -hmm. um, Daniel's interpreting the dream, um, and he's telling uh, what what those things represent. Or, or he's not telling us exactly what they're – he's telling what they see. And here's, here's the, the viewing that um, most of the Reformed camp would agree with. Um, I actually got this synopsis from R.C. Sproul. So if you want a name thrown out there, uh, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> he, he has a wonderful, much shorter uh, than than these uh, ours are going to be, where he goes through the different views of eschatology. Highly suggest anybody to go there and look yeah. at it. He does a very good job at being um, not biased in that at all, too. He, yeah. re really uh, good. And that, that lecture's on YouTube, yes. um, the one you're referring to. He, and there's also excerpts from his book, which is Last Days According to Jesus. I recommend that, too. And it really is so optimistic. It's so great. Um, anyway, yeah, um, any any teaching you want to look at, if you just put R.C. Sproul and the subject you're looking for on YouTube, you might just find something from him. And the dude was just an amazing pastoral heart and teacher, regardless of whether you're reformed or not. Because mm -hmm. um, there's stuff that he talks about that it doesn't, it, it's universal for Christians. Yes. Um, very Catholic, if you want to use that word. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Daniel 7, we're in um, verses 4 through 14. Um, so we see four beasts, um, the lion indicating Babylon. So winged lions um, with human faces were placed at the entrances of all the public buildings of Babylon. That's um, outside historical um, stuff. So that would be a clear indicator for the people that, it, that they were speaking to at the time. They would go, oh, okay, so that's Babylon. There would be understanding there. Mm -hmm. Because why, in, the, in terms of prophecy... So we, we can understand that there's some kind of cryptic ideas in it sometimes, but I don't think that the intent of God was ever to make it so confusing that it was secret codes and mysteries really. of the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't I don't see that as being true. Because no. God's word is meant to edify his church and his people. Mm -hmm. So he's not going to write it in some way where you have to dig for 20 years necessarily. Oh, I could be Put wrong the pieces something. together and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, everything that's meant to be revealed is, is honestly revealed. Uh, you know, the only time anything was ever really kind of concealed in a way, at least the way that I see it, was the Old Testament and the coming 
of Jesus, it, it, it was concealed in the fact that he talked about it. It's just people didn't understand it. People didn't see it. It was a mystery, and which all that gets revealed in the New Testament. And from now on, there really is no more mysteries, um, or that part, I agree. at least that we but, I mean, need. Simeon too, though. Say again. I mean, Simeon was Simeon yeah. was able to figure out when Jesus was going to be in Jerusalem, and he showed up, mm-hmm. and he goes, "There he is." Yep. That's pretty amazing. And of course, the Magi as well were able to, to decipher a lot of stuff from prophecy, and they showed up, and there he was as well. They did their so, homework. I mean, there, there is, yeah, yeah, there, there are instances where you do see that being the case. And the other thing with prophecy, the way the way I see it is, is, if you look at Old Testament, you'll see a prophecy, then you'll see a fulfilling of it, not that far off in the future. I mean, that not, not far off, maybe a couple hundred years, but if you're looking at Daniel, and it's like 3,000 years later, like mm. wh- why why would that prophecy have been given at that time, and how would it have edified those people? Which I could admit is one of the weaker points in in pre mill views. Like you said, the constant use in Revelation in Matthew twenty four and other various spots were coming soon. These things are going to happen soon. I'm coming uh, quickly. You know, the, the very specific language uh used there and it's and it, you, you you have to admit it you can't just beat around with it and use the well in god's time you know one minute is like a thousand years a thousand years yeah <laughs> exactly right um so so that would have been the first one uh then we have the bear and i know that the bear is being thrown right now for russia because there's a lot of symbolism on the bear yes. um but the bear here represents metapersia it talks about the three ribs Medo-Persia had three conquests historically over Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. So those would have been the three ribs. Um, and that would have been not too far off after uh, the fall of Babylon. Um, the leopard um, represents, um, in most in most views, Alexander the Great's conquest over Persia um, because of its speed. Um, so as you took a leopard that was already fast and gave it wings, and it was even faster yet. Um, and then finally you have, uh, so it was four beasts, so I th- that's what I thought. Um, then you have the fourth beast, which is just the same as we see it in Revelation. Ten horns. Um, one of the ten horns uh, is a little horn, which, again, would be the, um, uh, was, in my, my view, that would be uh, Nero. Um, but that would be what the, the personification of Rome, which would have been uh, Nero. Mm-hmm. Um so there's two views on this. So I'm bringing it up in Daniel instead of Revelation, but it applies to both. So um, the ten horns. Now there's two. There's a couple views of this. Um, one of my other friends brought it up. Who um, just recently came to the post meal view, and he's been reading like crazy. You know how zeal. Yeah, when you get like, it, like oh my gosh. <laughs> he said, "Hey, I know you told me that the the ten horns are the ten kingdoms of Rome, because um, historically, if if you would have said." Well, to a person in Rome anywhere in the empire, who is the empire of ten kingdoms, they would have said Rome. And they could have been completely illiterate. That was just the common kind of nickname for, it's like saying, hey, what city is the Big Apple? Mm-hmm. And then someone go, New York. Because that's just what it's called. That's what it's known as. Um, so I still hold that view. He actually brought up um, a, a nice article here and there. It was saying it could have been the ten generals leading up to the conquest. Um, it could have been the ten uh, governors of the – that's all fine and dandy. I'm going to stick with the ten kingdoms for now because I still think that holds more weight. Um, and then we also know that uh, the little horn being the sixth emperor, uh, Nero. 
And then in verse 12, it tells of the little horn's death, which we talked about already. Mm -hmm. Um, But the empire lives on for a time. But after that, we see a clear telling of Jesus as king, which is really awesome. And that is really indicative of the post-millennial view. That's telling you about what I see as right now. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. (laughs) Um, And it's clearly about Jesus. I don't think anyone would contest that. No. Um, For either view. Um, and then the last one I have, um, before we get to maybe some questions, um, is uh, Zechariah 12.10. Um, I'll go ahead and turn to it just so we have. Uh, that's not something that, that people really have on memory as no, often. No, I, I don't, that's um, for sure. So <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look at me on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So here's there's two things. On that day, and we see day again used, day, of course, the day of the Lord most of the time is not a happy day. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's usually a really rough one. Um, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo which is where we get the word Armageddon. Yep. The land shall mourn. The land shall mourn. Mm-hmm. Um, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself. So it's going through each of the tribes, each of the tribes of the land, which ties exactly to what I was talking about in Revelation 1-7. Because Revelation 1-7 I see is a, a rephrasing or a repeat in a way of this passage like a summary of it and of course what did all of the people who wrote the new testament reference they didn't reference the new testament Mm because they were right they referenced the old testament which we see right here so that's another indicator of um of that um so yeah so i know we didn't nearly cover everything but hopefully that gives at least a good primer for the beliefs of post mill and and some evidences as to why it's it's the case why it's true um why there's a good basis for it to being correct and why it holds weight and that's exactly the entire point of this entire episode or two episodes i think i'm going to split it up into two Uh, not not a lot of people have time to to sit there for two straight hours but i mean they can always pause not everybody's a rogan (laughs) yeah exactly so i think the, the this is the main point that i wanted people to get out is that people aren't just um saying they're post mill and throwing, you know, over, I want to say the connotation is over spiritualizing everything where they could just, Oh, well that's spiritual. Oh, that's spiritual. Oh, that's spiritual. No, there's evidences to back up what you're saying, why you believe what you believe and, and that it's not just some, you know, uh, spiritualization. I'm waving my hand for people who can't see, you know, Oh, it's spiritualized, you know, cause it, th- that can be an easy thing for some people to do and honestly one of the connotations that some people might think that's happening but there's actually evidences and i'll i'll uh, i think i'm not sure if we mentioned them on the uh the episode yet but i know we talked about it earlier before we started recording mike wainer uh does a very good job of uh talking about this how post mills probably do the most homework out of any of the three views when it comes to finding actual historical evidences for why they believe what they believe and then bumping that with scripture and showing how this actually messes uh, you know 
mashes up with each other. And it's not just something that they pull out of thin air and go spiritualized. <laughs> and that's, that's what I wanted to prove with this. That book that I keep mentioning before Jerusalem fell, that's where I started. I was like, okay, for any of this to be true, and I haven't gotten to the evidences or, or studied any of it yet. I just, I knew there was a premise saying there's a possibility that Revelation was talking about an event in 70 or 63 to 70 AD. I'm like, okay, if that's true, then the writing has to be before that. So I had to be convinced of that before I started looking into anything else. And I, I think that's probably a good step. So that's why I think starting here, if you want to look into this view, start with that book and then start to look at the worldview of, of Post Mill. Um, because once you've established that the historical basis is good, then you can start looking at it and going, okay, if this is true, how does that apply to me? How does that change my view of how I evangelize to people? My attitude that the kingdom is going to be successful, that we're not sitting here waiting for Jesus to come rescue us. We're building his kingdom so he'll come to accept it, and we're his bride. That when all people who are going to be saved and are predestined to be saved, if you want to use that terminology, mm -hmm. once all of those people are saved, he'll come back. Now, we don't know when that is because he has the number in his head. Out. He knows, of course, you know, anthropomorphic so only, language there in his that's head. Why but. Says, yeah, that's why it says, I mean, only the father knows because the father is the one that then has the Holy Spirit drawn to the son and then the son delivers them to the father. And I, I can't um, remember the exact verse. Um, Paul talks about that when the fullness comes, you know, the fullness of the Gentiles, when, when that comes to pass. You know, that, that's essentially when that time's going to be. God has a number, and when that number reaches that number and every single person that's meant to be saved throughout history is saved, then that's you know, when Christ will return and establish his kingdom. And I don't think anybody can really argue that, period. And that, that's one of the big main points. So we talked. To, so you gave a really good job of evidences, uh, and, and I know for some people you might think this wasn't brief. That was a very brief overview of it. Oh, it yeah. was brief. There is so yeah. much more in the studying that I've done over the last few weeks uh, that, that you can add into there. But yeah, I think you did a good enough job for when people are curious. I think they're going to they're gonna get in there and actually start. Um, hopefully this gets you curious enough to study it because you shouldn't just sit on your one view and say, this is what I am. This is what I believe. And there's no point in me studying these other things. No, go, get out there and, and, and study wow. it. If not for yourself, do it for the very fact of maybe you want to defend your viewpoint. Uh, because if you want to defend your viewpoint, you got to know how other views work. Think of it, I know most people that listen to this are probably more on the reform side of the house. Think of it as the way that you would defend, you know, a more Calvinistic view of the Bible against, a, you know, an Arminius view of the Bible or the Trinity. The do Let's do something central that we can all agree on, the doctrine of the Trinity. I say all agree on, but, you know, uh, if you're not a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Oh, so uh, I don't think anyone—I don't think any oneness people listen to this podcast if they, if based off of what I, I said so. before. I hope, I hope they, they do. do. I really do. And I actually yeah. implore when I go over that kind of stuff. I'm like, I challenge you: sit here, listen to this, and you know, if you have any arguments, by all means, bring it up. Um, John one. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's good to understand these different viewpoints, and and that's the main reason why we're doing this. So with that being said, I want to ask you, and I, I know I, I wasn't not sure if you prepared this, but I did ask ahead, what are some of the weak points that you see with the post-mill view? Like something that you would probably consider a weakness, because I do see in all three views that they have their strengths 
and they have their weaknesses. Yeah, um, I did. I, I had a couple of those um, just prepared just in case. Um, so one question that, that is commonly asked is that um, how can you hold to a, a, a positive view of post-millennialism if things are clearly getting worse, if things are, I mean, look at the world today, how terrible is it? Okay, well, let's take a step back for a second. And I know we kind of briefly touched on that earlier, um, but do we base our beliefs on the news or do we base it on the Bible? Mm-hmm. Where does it imply that the kingdom of Jesus, the gospel, the church will ultimately fail? Where can, where can you show me that verse? or even a group of verses or that theme in scripture, because I, I don't believe that you can. Um, then someone might ask, well, what about the world wars? Well, yes, those were terrible, but in the end, did good prevail? Did good come out of those wars? Yes, the Holocaust was horrible. It was a tragedy, but we're not all Nazis now, are we? Mm-hmm. No, good did prevail despite the terrible event. Um, and how do we compare to the past? So, I mean, now most people, especially if you're an American sitting here thinking about American history, well, think about the time before our founding up until now. Of course, everyone would bring up slavery. Yes, it was horrible, and it's a blight and a, a, a deep blemish on the history of our yeah, country. I don't think anybody's minimizing that. Terrible, terrible injustice. But what other time in history where do you see the birth of a nation and within a hundred years, you see it get rid of slavery. Mm-hmm. Nowhere, Nowhere else. else. Yeah. Take too long, still, it definitely took too long. Because even the founding fathers, many of them, if not most of them, were talking about ending it right from the get-go. They had convictions. But, yeah. but at the time, yes. Um, and where do we get those convictions from? That's the biblical worldview. And when people say, oh, the Bible condones slavery, no, it absolutely does not. If you actually look at what's there. The slavery they have in their head is very different from the slavery, the slavery, slavery in the Bible. Uh, Very, very, very different. Yeah, it wasn't a race-based kidnapping kind of thing or a buying and selling of human trafficking. It wasn't like that. It was almost a way of life. Um, Either you were born into it because of that or or debts that you couldn't pay off. But we won't get too far into it. Yeah. I mean, and you can spread that throughout the world. Are there still nations that are absolutely not good and, and that there's there's problems happening? Yes. In those nations, do we see rises in Christianity? We do. There's a huge swell of Christianity even in China and in North Korea, and we just don't hear about it as much. But we hear reports from missionaries and from the church of, of these big swellings of the faith, and I believe that that's that's a huge part of the kingdom growing. So can mm-hmm. someone honestly tell me now from 12 men starting and spreading the gospel of Christ until now where we have millions upon millions of believers that the gospel has not been successful, that the gospel and the law of God has, a whole nation was founded upon those principles. And then Europe ended up following suit in many ways mm-hmm. because they saw that it, it works because it, 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 God's law is perfect. Yeah. And then so you, you go there, back to an optimism that's undeniable, mm-hmm. especially once the reformation kicked in and uh, you see more countries adopting into that. And like, it, it goes back to, like we said, you got to take a, a step back and instead of looking at the tree in front of your face, check out the entire forest because, it, yes. you know, essentially 
did Christianity grow? Obviously. Yes, it did. You know, there are, whether or not they're true or not, there are more people in the world today than any other religion claiming to be Christian. I'll put little quotes on there, you know, um, because sadly, we, we know better than to, you know, assume that everybody that calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. But, you know, it's, but the, it, sh- it does show that the gospel is prevailing. And that's one thing, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, at least from my viewpoint uh, as, as pre-mill, I, I, I've never once ever thought of the gospel ever failing. Uh, you know, God's w- will prevail. Uh, but now where I do see, and this gets into one of the points or questions that I had to say, was, you know, what I do see is the world in general, though, going through that great apostasy or the great falling away. I think Paul talks about it in Thessalonians. I wrote it down here. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter two, you know, he talks about that that great falling away. There's going to be let me just pull it up. So that way I'm not pulling anything out of thin air and I'm misquoting. But in, it's in Revelation as well. Yeah. So Second Thessalonians yeah, chapter two, verse one through three. Now, brethren, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as it is from us, as though this day of Christ had come. Uh, So just to put in a little bit of context, Paul's writing the church in Thessalonica here, for anybody that, that doesn't know. And they were worried that the resurrection already happened. There were people telling them, like, oh, it's already done. It's passed, you know, and he's like... there was one. Yeah. There was one at, at, at Christ when Christ died and arose. Mm-hmm. There were other people seen. In Matthew, yeah, Matthew specifically yes. talks about it, which is a passage that doesn't that. get talked about enough, mind you. I, I always read that. I'm like, come on, Matthew, give me some more with this here. You can't just leave me on this part. Yeah. <laughs> but For they sure. were thinking that the actual day of the Lord, the great resurrection that we, we see, you know, they thought it was already here uh, and it already passed and they missed it. They missed it somehow. Uh, so he's, he's writing them to comfort them that. Verse 3, says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. Uh, now, obviously, I think we did hit up on who you believe. Well, actually, let me just ask you, who do you believe the man of sin, the son of perdition is then, based in a post mill viewpoint? same thing as, as with Nero and all that. Okay. Yeah. All right, so the great falling away then, you would see this rather than something that's going on currently, which most pre-mill people will see, uh, the great falling away, and just look at American Christianity, you would see this as, well, actually, you go ahead and explain it. Don't let me put words in your mouth. The dying of the old covenant, because we see the law, like, for all of the talk of being lawful and, and upholding the law that the Pharisees held, when you read Josephus as to the horror show, that the Jews were inflicting upon themselves, they were completely lawless. Their, their hearts had grown cold. All of the stuff that we just read about Matthew 24, that Jesus said a great falling away, that's that's what we really saw. The Jews, the final death throes of the old covenant, finally being... Now, now there is still um, some kind of an apostasy in the future. I just don't think this particular passage is referring to that one. Mm-hmm. I think this one is talking about the, the earlier time. Um, but in Revelation, um, right before Satan is thrown, and, and we actually didn't get to that. Um, I'll just touch on it briefly. So, By all means, do. Yeah, one of, the, one of the issues with the futurist view is that if you have the millennial kingdom being a time without sin, then where does the sin come back from? And what, someone would say, oh, Satan's released and he introduces sin back into. Well, then so, are all those people's 
saved during the millennium until he comes back, and then he is able to fool the elect? And what about people being born? Are, are the people who are resurrected in glorified bodies, are they having babies with regular humans? And what are those hybrids? So this is like one of the weaker points. Yeah, th this is definitely one of the weaker points when it comes to the pre, um, pre-millennial view. Uh, I, I personally don't think it completely discredits it, but I do take some argument sure. with people who hold to this because what people tend to do in the pre-mill side of the house is they take uh, what's said in, in, at the end of Revelation 19 and into 20, and they will start adding these things in there that aren't said, but rather they infer it, and then that inference almost gets treated as if it's scripture. So an example, like what you said, you know, if there's going to be this period, we take that period of long life from the Old Testament, we understand that, that, that I can't remember the exact passage right now, where it talks about, you know, a man will live to 100 and he'll be considered a youth. Um, and if anybody dies before the age of 100, they'll say, oh my gosh, their sin was so horrible, paraphrasing, obviously. Um, yeah. You know, and that's where most people get that implication of the millennium from, that there's going to be long, extended life. And I've even heard John MacArthur uh, say this because he's, you know, he's a proponent of this. So he has to he has to explain this stuff. And he, he I, to to uh, his credit, he doesn't just sit there and not explain it. You know, and he would he, he would say that he had to admit that, you know, well, it, when people die in the millennial kingdom, you know, those who weren't actually resurrected. But if people die and they're believers they'll be instantly transported into their resurrected body from that point on. Uh, doesn't really get into the addressing of, you know, uh, yeah. um, people who were resurrected being with, you know, having babies and stuff with people who weren't. This uh, has to come somewhere. Yeah. That, that's what I have an issue with. So, and that's that the thing. Being taken out and then reintroduced and then immediately taken out again. See, I and I don't see anywhere, and this is me maybe trying to defend my premillennial viewpoint, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm always admit, you know, especially when it comes to eschatology, I could be wrong. I don't particularly see anywhere in the Bible where it does say everything is going to be sinless and perfect. It's going to be a time of prosperity, and it's going to be a time of overall goodness, but it's going to be confounded to that new. I don't want to say New Jerusalem, that isn't proper terminology for it, that millennial kingdom frame in Jerusalem, because that's where most pre-mills believe, that you're, it's Jerusalem, that's the center right there, that's where everything is, and there's going to be nations on the outside living there, because uh, eventually, like, Satan will, in that viewpoint, Satan gets released, he deceives those nations to come fight against Christ, which is just kind of mind-blowing to me, because you have this prosperity, you have Christ right there, you know, it how are you going to fight this? <laughs> Makes no sense. Um, see, here's the thing, because a lot of people will see the end of, of chapter 19, the rider on the white horse, being the second coming. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's what I that's, that's what I view it as. It's problematic. Because, because if he comes back, and that's the second coming, and all of the things that come along with the second coming happen there, rather than at the end where you see the, 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 the judgment and the, and the white throne, because it doesn't show him touching down here, and it, this is clearly judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right here it is we, judgment. You don't see a piece until into chapter twenty in the new heaven and the new earth, or in twenty one, really. So that's that's where I find um, find it to be problematic. Because if Jesus comes in judgment, and then there's a thousand years, and then there's another another judgment, what was the purpose? 
Because if, if all of the earlier, like we talked about, the creeds and confessions talked about the purpose of his coming to be in judgment, how, did, how does that work? You know what I mean? So if he came in judgment on the clouds here, that's much more indicative of what those show. And then after the thousand years, and then you have the defeat of Satan, where he's actually finally defeated, then you have there being no sin, and then, then you have the final resurrection of the dead. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just how the millennium works is very different a lot of times to a futurist as it is to a post mill Because we see it as the buildup of his kingdom and then its final conclusion at the end of chapter 20. Well, the middle of chapter 20. Yeah, the middle. I can't, I can't, yeah. Well, no, it's really the middle, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's more so the middle. Um, yeah. yeah, where that, I, I think I was actually watching somebody on YouTube when I was doing my studies. He, he, he put a clear, I cannot remember, I should have wrote it down, the verse. He's like, this Everything from this point previous is all past. Everything from this point on is future. You know, he drew a very clear line of exactly where that was. Um, so um, I could probably do the same thing here. I, let's see. I mean, really, it would probably uh, have to be six. 20 verse 6. 26. Uh, Blessed uh, and holy oh, yeah. is the uh, one who passed the first resurrection. Even before that, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So... Verse 4 would be the last preterist part I would probably hold to. So that first resurrection, then, you're saying that's still going to happen in the future? The first? No, the second. The second. So verse 6 is still passed to you, then? No. So, okay, so, because when it says this is the first resurrection, that's talking about verse uh, 4. So here, let, let's just go back a little bit. Yeah. So who would not worship... So they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those were the ones that died during the tribulation. So the first resurrection is referencing that sentence. Mm-hmm. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years had ended. And that so would, I would view. Ended, then we'll see the general resurrection of the dead. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense for what you're saying. It's just so, so you don't see really two, two different resurrections i guess then am i saying that I right do, but i think i think that the first one is meaning that those who were martyrs for christ during mm-hmm. the tribulation they were resurrected and reign with him now in the millennial kingdom now and, and it does it does talk about that yeah about those who that's one of the problem points i think for the pre-tribulational pre-millennial view throwing all these words out here um you know, that is one of the problem points, you know, on how you explain that. That's one of the reasons why I switched from what I grew up as as a pre-trib, pre-mill, to a classic pre-mill, you know, post-tribulation rapture believer. So that, that gets into another question then. So what is your view on the rapture? So I see that as us meeting Christ in the air and ushering him down, a lot like a Jewish wedding where the bridal party would go out to meet the groom and usher him into the town to meet his bride. So you do believe that so there is a actual rest. rapture then from a post-mill sure. viewpoint? Arpazo is clearly there in the Greek. Um, rapturo, of course, in the Latin, that's where we're getting the rapture word from. Mm-hmm. It's clearly there. There's there's no getting around that. And so you have to explain it somehow. Um, and in the context of what we see in uh, Jewish tradition from the, the Old Testament, that seems to indicate what it is. He's already he's already been crowned king, and now he's coming into his kingdom to claim it. Mm-hmm. He's coming in as the bridegroom, which is the imagery used 
um, in other parts of the Bible to meet his bride, which is the church, yep. which has been perfected. Okay, and that, that was one of the things I had a hard time finding from the post-mill people of like what their view of the rapture, if they even believe in a rapture, uh, was. So thank you for clarifying that. Say again? Yeah, some, some might not. I, I, don't, I don't really run into a lot that don't. Um, but I, I, I haven't heard anybody else able to explain Harpazzo. It's right there. It, yeah, and that's gotta, a very, it's got to mean, <laughs> mean something, you know, especially when Paul gets yeah. very in-depth about it, you know, and, and Jesus even alludes to it, you know, one man walking up a hill and, you know, uh, or two men walking up a hill <laughs> and then one's gone. So I'm thinking now I'm oh, got actually, that. Oh, since you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, that's again. We should probably hit that real quick. Do real it, quick. do it. So now he talked, well, I'll just be brief. So he talks about it'll be as it is in the time of Noah. So in the time of Noah, who was swept away? All the It wasn't everybody. Noah and his family. It was the wicked. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe that Matthew 24 is at all talking about the rapture. I believe that's talking about the judgment. So the two men walking up a hill, one's gone or anything like that, that's not talking about a rapture. One that's what you would say. gone is the wicked one that's swept away in, in judgment. Hmm. Because the times of Noah, when it was at its most lawless... Like all of the references to Noah don't indicate a God rescuing a whole group. He, he yes, uh, you can you can argue that he rescued the small group, but as far as swept, well, let's just go to it because it's it's better when it's not me saying it. Matthew said it a lot better than yeah. I ever. Jesus said it a lot better. Yeah, you know the, the Bible's um, pretty good at being the Bible. It's like, you know, God, well, there's that. Um, <laughs> so, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So the coming of the Son of Man. Not Noah. Mm -hmm. Them away. The people who were eating and drinking and not giving a care about what was going on around them. It's a very important distinction because then that sets up what's being said in the whole rest of that um, sequence there. The two men in the field, the two women grinding at the mill, stay awake for you don't know when the Lord is coming. And then when you get to 45, it's talking about being a good steward over what God has given you to take care of. So if you've been swept away, what are you doing there? Mm -hmm. If you're gone, that doesn't make sense. Is that the wicked that he's talking about being stewards? Of course not. It's the people that are here that were left behind, which is actually the righteous, yeah, not the wicked. So the ones that are here are now stewards building his kingdom. That's a different way of seeing it. I've never, uh, I've never, never thought of it that way. Um, and, and actually, I've always used stuff like that to kind of argue a more post-tribulational rapture view. To, to my my most of my family is, is pre-trib. Uh, and I was like sure. the one that kind of broke away from it. So I, it's always fun conversations during Christmas on that stuff. So well, if the futurist view is correct, I hope it, that it's pre-trib. <laughs> yeah. Oh, trust me. Don't get me wrong. I like I, think I, it's going to be. It, it's but. the it's the optimist view of the uh, – but it, as I read Scripture more and more and more uh, with, with that premillennial mindset, I, I just couldn't see – a pre-tribulational rapture being justified. It's like, what are all these warnings for then? You know, because if the church is going to be gone, what's the point of all these warnings? What's the point of all this stuff that we're going through? Um, so, 
And if you keep going on that train of warnings, you eventually make it all the way <laughs> Wasn't that what you said you did? You, you kind of jumped from the yeah. new pre-mill to classic pre-mill over to the post-mill. So who knows? Come, come see me. And, I, and, and I, I'm going to make this clear when I do the uh, pre-recorded or when I do the other episode in the introduction, which y'all have already heard at this point if you're following along. You know, I, I don't hold my view with a firm iron grip where I am like, it is this way or absolutely not. I, I, I hold it very loosely. You know, who knows? I could be a uh, post-mill guy in a few years. I could be an on-mill guy in a few years. I, I, that's how loose I hold these views because, sure. w- number one, it's not salvific like we said. Uh, and number two, we are talking about some stuff that everyone can admit is very, very meaty and weighty. And especially when you start start talking about the spiritual aspects because as much as pre-mills want to say absolute literal they don't take we don't take everything literal in the book of revelation you have to admit that when you're talking about these spiritual things this can be confusing you know and you have to draw these lines and figure this all out uh so that's that's pretty much why long story short i don't hold my views tight uh, so I can admit, I I'm, will- I'm, I'm happy to find out in midair that I'm wrong. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, I trust the, the optimist in me would love for a pre-trib rapture to happen and just, whoop, all right, great. <laughs> but I just, I just have a hard time seeing it. Um, and that's not, not to, this has nothing to do with it. It was just another more of annoyance with the, with the pre-trib side. I feel like every person always believes that they're going to be part of that generation that's part of the preacher. I've always, I've always well, met those 10 years people. ago, it sure was better than it is now, no. that whole mindset, because of how saturated with bad news we are, especially in the U.S. now. So it, it is uh, uh, something that I've noticed, and I think we're seeing this more. We're actually seeing more people fall away, and this is just an over overgeneralization. I think we see more people moving away while it is the more popular view, more people moving away from the premillennial view than we have before in the past. Um, and that that's an overall, uh, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm being very general. I don't have a, a large amount of stats to back that up. But just from the overall view that I see uh, in, in general Christianity today, I'm, I am seeing more of a, a switch. And we do this, you know, we, we do this throughout our stuff. Um, especially depending on what denominations you're a part of, because some denominations will hold to different views. You know, Pentecostals, for example, they are huge in pre-mill eschatology. Like, it is pre-mill or die for them. Baptists are, are normally, not always, they're a little bit, you know, but Baptists are usually more in the pre-mill side. But even the Reform, the church I go to, my pastor is pre-trib, pre-mill. Oh, really? So well, you, he's re- my own pastor. for a Reformed Baptist, yeah. <laughs> You know, and I, I go to a Reformed Baptist church, so I, yeah, sure. it, it's not, it, it's definitely not one of those hard stance. But then, like you said, the, maybe the more Presbyterian side, this is the more post-mill or some of your more extreme charismatics, like we talked about in the beginning of this, you know, can, are on that post-mill side. And then I don't know where people would fall with ah-mill stuff, honestly. I don't, I, I had a hard time trying to it's find that. Bit. Yeah, it's a little bit uh, nebulous. Like I said, it is nebulous. Amils are the cheaters. I, I've always called them this. They're the cheaters because they pick and choose. From I'm just messing around with you, Amil people. But it does seem they get the luxury of going, well, I like this from the post-trip guys, and I like this from the pre-mill. Because it's like, 
all the stuff from post mill up until you get to the end it's like yeah except we don't believe the world's going to get better we believe it's going to get worse like the pre mill so <laughs> uh, that be just... the negative view on mill but yeah 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 it, it's it, weird it's... how it's funny. So before we really start closing this out, because I feel like we're getting to that point, I did have a few other just quick questions. Uh, yeah, so two witnesses, Revelation, what does the post mill view say of the two witnesses? You know, and if you if you're not familiar with this in Revelation, there's going to be two witnesses. I'm going to dumb it down. Very, very dumb here. Uh, not insulting anybody's intelligence, but essentially two witnesses. They they come and they have this period of time where they are being a witness for God and they are killed in the middle of of the street and their bodies are left there the entire world sees them which of course a pre-mill would say with the internet and tv and news you know this would be very easy nowadays and then eventually they get resurrected and they um you know go back to heaven these two witnesses also have you know powers to make it rain and do all this other different stuff like i said i don't want to get too far into it but how would a post mill view something very specific like the two witnesses uh go ahead if it was in a literalist sense, what you said is is generally what's what is is the view. Um, so let me ask you this: in the Old Testament, what did two witnesses represent? It was the you confirmation. Know? Yeah. So two witnesses are what was needed to condemn someone who's accused of something. Mm -hmm. And it's the exact same thing we see now, the innocent until proven guilty, all of those Deuter um, like Deuteronomy and Levitical laws that we see is what our justice system in America here was based on. So it's the witness of, of multiple witnesses, two or more, that would give the ability of the accused to be accused. Mm -hmm. So to me, that is a, an instance of um, not necessarily hyperbole, but symbolism and metaphor. So that's one of the reasons I like to start a little bit into Matthew 23 before I present Matthew 24, because Jesus is is condemning those. And it's interesting because Jesus, being God, is already more than one witness by default, yeah. which is very intriguing. So he can actually condemn alone because he's three persons. But, um, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So the prophets and all of those who are witnesses to everything leading up to Jesus are condemning, and we see that in the writings of Paul, are condemning the covenant breakers for what they have done. So the prophets, all of the prophets of the Old Testament, to me, are the two witnesses, and all the things they could do is just a laundry list of what we saw from the prophets throughout the Old Testament. I don't see it as a literal two people coming to earth with special abilities. That, that is a very literalist view, and I don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. I see that as allegory from the Old Testament, um, which is which was shadowed in the epistles of Paul um, pointing ahead to that. Any That's idea of on what that would, and if you said that and I missed it, but like any idea on who or what that could be representing? Just curious. As far as a specific yeah. prophet? I don't, I don't see it as being a specific two. Like a nation I mean, or something. I was just curious that. what the interpretation no, would be. No, not at all. I, I think that the two witnesses are representative of the prophets who prophesied about Jesus. So all the prophets saying, as a whole. The Messiah. Then. Right. And so there were witnesses to the Messiah. And then the covenant breakers, of course, ignored those two witnesses and, and killed them in the streets, which they actually literally did to a lot of the old prophets as well. Oh, yeah. Um, especially to Jesus. Um, so I think that that's talking about 
a larger theme rather than a specific coming down. If you wanted to, to lay it to two people, some people in the post group have argued that if you need that to be fulfilled as a physical coming of two people, you could say that was the transfiguration um, on the uh, mountain. Yeah, you know, you, you could throw the transfiguration on there. If you needed it. I didn't. I don't really feel like that's needed. Yeah, uh, but the, because then, then you're trying to connect dots that I think that aren't really there at that point. I think you're safer with the first analogy, like you just said, connecting it to the prophets. Um, so I, I really got, I only got about two more questions unless something else comes sure. up. So new heaven and new earth. All right. So at the end in Revelation 21, I, and I've heard Doug Wilson's argument on this before. And I'm not sure if you stand there, if you stand different. So are we going to get in the post mill view, a literal new heaven and new earth, or will it be this earth remade? No. Don't know? Yeah. <laughs> no. As it stands right now, I kind of lean toward a a restoration of the old earth and the new Jerusalem coming down. I actually take more in a literalist view that it's literally a city with measurements and everything. Oh, yeah. It gets very specific, especially when you go to Ezekiel and you read these things, the measurements and everything. Yeah. I, I kind of take the literalist stance of the city coming down. Um, and that becoming the actual new Jerusalem on a restored earth, restored to the sense of, of the perfection that, that, that the Father, well, or God in general, um, intended from the beginning. And so, that, and that again ties into covenantal theology where he had his redemption plan before he even created the world. And he said, here is the story that we're going to paint. And then that's the culmination of it. So I, I lean toward that it's still this planet. But I've heard a couple people say, no, he's going to be like, poof, new planet. So where are all the people, though? Because do the people go to the heavens and then they're brought back down? I don't see any of that. So I really it's don't see It's in between the white lines. <laughs> I don't see enough evidence. It does say that the heavens and earth will pass away. So it's, it's Jesus himself said that in Matthew 24. Yeah, I was just so, curious because Doug Wilson seemed to be very... Very adamant that it was this earth and continuing this earth. So I wasn't sure if that was a general view of post mill. Um, That's contested. Yeah, yeah okay. I think there's multiple interpretations of that, and and both of them hold weight because I mean, in verse 35 of Matthew 24, it says, "Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away." And those two words, heaven and earth, are the correct terms, and that's the correct translation. So it does not say guess there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Okay, and then the last one, um, and this leans more on the covenant theology side. We already dispelled the, the nasty rumor. Sadly, there are some people out there that, that do think this, but dispelled that nasty rumor that just because you believe in a, a more covenant theology doesn't mean that you are anti-Semitic and uh, the church has replaced Israel and Israel is doomed to hell for eternity or anything like that. Sadly, some people get on that, and I just wanted to be very clear once again um, so, but with covenant theology, how do you explain Romans 11? Romans 11? Yes. Um, take a look. And this, and the reason why I bring this up in the eschatology debate for anybody that, that wants to know is that from a pre-mill viewpoint, especially when you get into the dispensational pre-mill viewpoint, uh, they see a very separate, uh, uh, separate, I don't want to say plan. Some people would probably say plan, but a separate uh, way that God deals with the church, the Gentile church, and how God deals with Israel, specifically like Revelation would mention the, what I believe is 144,000, 
you know, that God has set aside. Um, and, and from a pre-mill viewpoint, you see that as being separate. Uh, I know the pre-tribulational rapture people would often say that that 144,000 are the people who are left behind to evangelize the world. I believe John MacArthur goes into that a lot. I, Once again, me being post-trib guy, I don't really adhere to that. But me personally, I do see a difference between Israel and the church, not as far as most dispensationalists would go. I'm still kind of muddied in the water in it, but I'm curious to see how someone from covenant theology side would, would handle something like Romans 11, where I personally believe Paul is, is, is very clearly showing a separation. But once again, I'm, I'm open for correction and, and reproof. It depends on what you're saying, how you're defining Israel. Are you defining Israel as the national theocracy of Israel, or are you talking about the spiritual side of it? So I'm talking, um, yeah, I'm talking more so probably about the people as a whole, not really more so the yeah. nation, but the people, the covenant people. Uh, you know, not everyone who, um, not everyone who says they are Israel is Israel, as Paul says in you know Romans nine, and specifically goes into you know from Isaac to Jacob, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, you know, and that's the line right there. That's what I'm specifically referring to. So, so okay. Well, I mean, if we just read through it, and, and we can just take a, just a, a quick exegesis of it. So, so Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his, his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. Mm-hmm. That's an important statement, whom he foreknew. Well, let me ask you this. So how were the people of the Old Testament saved? Because a lot of people would say, oh, the sacrifice is saved. No, it was the same way they were saved today, by faith. It's through faith. And their faith was in the coming Messiah in the future that they didn't know the name of yet. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. So when God foreknew people from the new, just like we see in Romans, you know, in the Calvinistic view, it's the same thing there. All of those people, God foreknew them just as he foreknew people after Mm -hmm. Christ came. Um, So that's an important thing to to point out. That's one thing I definitely agree on. Salvation has not changed. It's always been the same. The nuances have changed with Christ actually coming and fulfilling, but you've always been saved by faith. Abraham believed on the God and was accounted in his righteousness. You know, exactly. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to them? I have kept for myself 7000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So when you were talking about the 144,000, I believe those were the Messianic Jews, the 12,000 from each tribe, which, again, the the term thousands can be figurative. It doesn't have to be a literal number. It certainly could have been. I don't know. We don't have a measure. There wasn't somebody with a little ticker going, one, two, three, four, 11,999. Okay, no more from this tribe, obviously. (laughs) We don't have that information. Um, but it's very feasible to say that upon the warnings of Jesus from Matthew 24, upon the epistles of Paul that we see um, in Thessalonians, and as well as, in my opinion, the revelation that was distributed before um, the real heavy hitting started in 64 AD, there were warnings, and those Jews, the Messianic Jews, which were not referring to the Gentiles specifically, I think that was referring specifically to Messianic Jews, were given 
warning, just like the Gentiles were to flee. And that's just a number of those that were given specifically for those numbers. Okay. Answer your question. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely shows me a little bit more insight than uh, to what you were thinking. Yeah, yeah, which it, it does. Yeah, because it does talk about that, which we talked about earlier, yeah. uh, being grafted in. And like I said, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I have a full 100% complete understanding of all this. Like I'm a little muddied in it, and I'm actually almost asking just not as a gotcha question, because like I said, I'm not trying to do that. But rather, I'm really trying to open up my understanding because, you know, I see passages in the Bible when, when specifically that where I feel like it's specifically talking about Israel. I mean, I know we can go Old Testament about that, but even in the New Testament, and then I see other things in the, um, uh, the where like this grafted in, and it's all in the same chapter right there. I'm like, so what is it, God? I just want to know for understanding. Uh, and not that this has anything to do with salvation. Like I said, uh, there by no means is God's plan of salvation for anyone ever going to fail. All those who are meant to be saved will be saved, period. But it's just you know, for our learning and for our edification. And that's why I was just curious on hearing, you know, that kind of viewpoint from a covenant theologist, because like I said, I just don't run with them too much. So I don't have, I don't have a lot of buddies uh, that are on that. Like I said, I go to a Reformed Baptist church. Um, so uh, I, I don't get these chances yeah, I mean, to ask uh, these questions often. Uh, uh, let's see. Oh, R.C. Sproul had another one for that. Is it Reformed Theology or Covenant Theology? It's, it's one of those two titles. Um, he gets into it really well. I'll have to check um, that there's out. There's also Systematic Theology. That's another good one to take a look at. But that I, starts getting into the, the specifics of that. You might have that one. I That's do, a pretty popular book. Yeah, I, I do have the... Uh, I do have Reformed Systematic Theology um, book. Reformed Systematic Theology, that's the one. Yeah, I got that one. And I, I, I haven't read into... They didn't have a giant part when it came to eschatology, because that's what I was looking at it for, for this. So I was kind of surprised, but I didn't think to look over at maybe the covenant side of theology in that book and I should check it out. I know, and I know you don't like this guy, but, uh, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want to say don't. you don't like him. I do have this one too, the Wayne Grudem one, his systematic theology okay. book. Uh, and he's obviously a pre mill guy. Um, he's kind of one of those oddballs, you know, cause he, he's, uh, he, 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 he's one of those continuationist reform guys, which you just don't see too often. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't know that some some would argue that disqualifies him from the reformed camp. So but yeah, that's, and that's why I, I try to use the word there. reformed loosely because I know people have their yeah. different definitions. Like he's reformed in the sense that he believes in the reformed view of salvation, but then he you know he holds to a continuationist, he holds to a pre mill, and um, what else? Oh, he, he does suggest that he holds to a more like like an old earth style belief than a yeah that's secondary too yeah um, it's I, all I, the secondary stuff yeah i have i have friends in, in the reform camp that believe both sides so yeah yeah that, and that like you said and i think that's important to note before we get way too off topic like this is all secondary stuff uh and one of the main points and you've probably heard it already if you heard the introduction episode because i'm going to go in heavy on that is this is not a point of separation this is not something to, to cut fellowships off with people. Uh, this is something to simply sit and learn. And honestly, if you're pre-mill, like me, because most people, we can admit, most people are probably pre-mill. That's the more popular view. In the West. In the agree. West. In the West. Good, good point. Um, yeah. 
do what I just did and have a conversation. Listen, you don't have to respond at every point. You know, one of the most saddest things that I saw when I was going through my studying was, I don't know if you've seen this, it was a night of eschatology and it was John Piper was the host. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he brought in the three. And the guy, I actually, I honestly don't even know who this guy was, the guy who was representing pre-mill. I knew who Doug Wilson was and I knew who the, his name eludes me right now, but I knew who the Amil representative was, but to the guy for pre-mill, he really made pre-mills look bad in the fact that he was so argumentative. Did you watch that? He was so argumentative and just cutting people off and being rude. And I was like, you're not doing anybody any favors here, buddy, for this side of the belief. Like, if anything, you're turning me away from pre-mill even more. Because uh, everybody was quiet when he explained what pre-mill was. But when Doug Wilson immediately started going in the post-mill, he had to start arguing at every point. And I'm like, you know, th- and that's the wrong approach. Do what we just did here. And you sit back and you listen and you just honestly gain an understanding to learn. That's what we need to do when it comes to these secondary issues. Yeah, listen, don't listen to answer, listen to hear. Ah, see, that's the perfect really, way to summarize it. Yeah, It's a good way to think about it because people will listen and they're starting to formulate how they're about to respond and they're just waiting, chomping at the bit, waiting to say what they want to say. And they don't actually even hear what was just said. And that's where you start to see, especially in, in the forms of debates, when you see straw men thrown out there. And oh, yeah. And when people don't even, or they don't even answer the question that was asked like i was watching your debate with the uh with the torah observant movement and you know i saw especially on that side you know just really really bad with that like not listening to a word so is this the recent one the yeah the recent uh, one jeremiah noel versus alter media yep yeah that one yeah. Yeah. I one it had its moments. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely did. I think the group chat yeah. was really where it was at. We were really going crazy in there. <laughs> it was a little brutal. Yeah. It oh, was, man. It was, yeah. Very, it was getting kind of nuts. Either side were being very, very uh, loving at all. Oh, yeah. No. Um, <laughs> were you a part of that? I'm trying to remember. Was I right in saying you were? You were... Not, in, not in it. I was in the chat. Oh, there, that's right. right. You were in the chat. It was that was with Black Doctor and um, and Noel, Buck and Noel. Rogers. yeah, Buck Rogers. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I mixed two it. Of my uh, podcast mates. My brain yeah, just I got that. That, that group Men of the way. So the other two are me, and then Andrew does apologetics. Andrew Elliott. That's the four of right. us are the, the Men of the Way podcast, but those two specifically um, were the ones taking on Brad and Seamus. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sorry. So I brain farted that one out there, but that was an interesting interesting thing but i don't even remember what we were talking about now but the straw men thing you're and you're right uh i'm probably going to cut some of that out <laughs> but, <That's fine. laughs> but you're 100 percent right you don't don't um don't I, I love what did you say you said it perfectly don't listen to answer don't listen to answer listen yeah. to hear exactly well i mean honestly that's just proverbs mm-hmm. that's just a rephrasing of what solomon said over and over again it's those who are slow to speak and those who like the the fools are the ones that speak the loudest and the quickest. I mean, if you take all of the talk about speech and condense them down, just following that one kind of rule, that's it really goes a long way because then you can really more competently answer someone's question. Because if, if you're in a debate and you and you need to chop the legs out from somebody, then you need to hear what their argument was mm-hmm. and you need not misrepresent it because if you misrepresent it everybody go ah he just strawmanned it or ah he just did this if you bring out a 
a verse and say, well, this says this. How do you respond to it versus what you just said, which was this, this, and this? Am I hearing you right? If you repeat their own argument back to it with the refutation, ooh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a death blow mm-hmm. in a debate, and, and, and it doesn't mean I'm not saying it's like literally childhood. And, and even understanding this, and this is just in general for for all these different viewpoints. Like maybe you have a friend that's a different viewpoint. You want to convince them of your viewpoint because let's face it, we 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 do that sure. sometimes. We want we like to have people in our same camp. Just understand whether you're post-mill, pre-mill, on-mill, and you're talking to people about this, or whether it's anything, period, nobody ever really responds immediately and goes, oh my gosh, you're 100% right. You know, that that happens, usually, but it's no. usually over time. Words that you say you will sink in, they think on it. You know, th- this is the way I did the entire doctrine of election. I'm, I'm probably going to cut this out, but I don't know. Maybe I'll keep it in. But like even the entire doctrine of election, like I remember when I first came upon it and I was so offended that somebody would have this viewpoint. I'll never forget. I was uh, like in in Iraq on a deployment. I was sitting in the CP. I had to do guard. And, uh, you know, my platoon sergeant walks in and he saw me read my Bible. At this point in my time in my life, I really wasn't a Christian. I was the epitome of what Titus says, professing Christ with your mouth, but denying him by your actions. That was me. So I was just reading my Bible and um, platoon sergeant walked in and said, oh, you're reading your Bible? Are you a Christian? Yeah. And then we we started talking and then he started, I don't know how we got into the conversation, but he ends up bringing up that he's like, he's like, tell me, how are people saved? You know, and I answered him and gave him a very Arminian view of it, which I didn't know what it was at the time. And he's like, mm, you know, the Bible says a little bit otherwise. And he proceeded to talk and he used scriptures. And I was so offended. I just remember how mad I was like, no, no, that's not right. This is, you know, my dad was a pastor and he never talked about this and blah, blah, blah. So then I go back and he's like, well, you know, call, you to call your father then ask him, see what he says. And then, you know, we can talk a little bit more. So I, in a heated rage the next day, called my dad and like, can you believe what this guy said? And my dad's like, well, Tim, you know, he's not wrong at all and i'm like huh (laughs) and that's when um i actually started reading my bible more go figure you know the truth is actually in the bible crazy to believe and it, it took a while for it to set in and it actually took me a few years before maybe not multiple years probably about a year and a half two years before i went back to him and i had to say hey thank you for that uh you, you, I know it was God, but God used you to totally help change my perspective on how I view these things. Uh, so all that to say this, you know, just understand when, when you're never going to change someone's mind right away, normally. It's always going to be something over or, time. Or really at all. No, or really at, at all. At the end of the day, who changes hearts? At the end of the day, only the Holy Spirit truly changed. Greg Kokel actually said, uh, he, he describes it as placing pebbles in people's shoes. <laughs> That's, That's really good... all that we're doing. I mean, it's, an, it's just a different metaphor from planting seeds. At the end of the day, if we're planting the pebbles in their shoes and they're going home going, and they just start thinking about that and they're uncomfortable with it and they're like, that's the times when the Holy Spirit maybe start to reveal a few things. Yep. Um, and it's the same thing with watering. And no, no person can save another person. No. And I don't mean just in terms of salvation. Even even convincing them to be saved. Yep. We're not the ones who do, do that. It ultimately is the Holy Spirit. And that's part of his role 
in salvation. Yeah. Is delivering people to the Son, and then the Son delivers them to the Father. Yeah. They, you, you just me- have to be diligent to plant the seeds. You, met, you mentioned the parable of the seeds, and that's exactly it. We, we can plant the seeds all day long, but at the end of the day, we're not the ones uh, determining which soil they're going into. You know, we don't, right. we don't know that. That's, that's 100% uh, between God and that person, really. I mean, uh, really, it's just 100% God. It's not even between anything else. God's the one who determines where those seeds land and how they're going to yep. grow. Our job is to simply go out there and spread it. Um, and just like you said, alluded to another verse, one man plants another waters, but it's God who gives the increase, not us. Um, cause that's sadly one of the saddest things is when you come across people who really believe they can affect other people's salvation. And I've seen people tore up like that. Like, you know, oh, I gave them the gospel and they never believed, you know, did I not do it right? And they passed away, you know, did I not do it right? I could have said this, I could have said that. And they were just tore up over it. But if you just understand that God is sovereign, and I'm preaching to the choir here, obviously, but if, if, if you just understand that hear? God is sovereign over salvation, you won't have to worry and tear yourself up about it. But yes, okay, so we've so gotten great. so far off removed from what we were originally talking about. <laughs> but the it's, gospel is never a bad conversation. No, so. and it never, never <laughs> is. You know, all things eventually lead up to the gospel, you know. And it's something that I can preach to myself over and over and over again and love to hear other people preach it to me. So with that being said, uh, go ahead and let us know where can people, you talked about it before, but reiterate it again since it was a long conversation. Where can people find you if they want to talk to you about this or just really generally want to learn more about post-mill theology or maybe just see the content you push out? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, one of the, my main platforms still is um, is on TikTok, oddly enough, um, despite my age. Um, it's a e disciple e dot disciple um, is my my handle, um, and I do put a lot of content out to there. Usually, it's just short little um, blurbs here and there. Um, I also have um, some nerdy stuff. So if you tend to be on the nerdy persuasion, um, I probably will appeal to you in some degree. If you look around the room that you're seeing, you see Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and all kind of stuff like that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nerd life. Um, it's the same, same name on uh, YouTube. Um, I'm porting a lot of the stuff over from TikTok onto YouTube, but I do plan to do, um, some more in the realm of, of that medium. Um, but a lot of the series that I did on TikTok, I've compiled into, um, you know, all in a row. So instead of trying to find the 10 different series talking about, one subject uh, subject of eschatology you can just watch it in one video on youtube which is nice that's actually um, a smart idea because mm-hmm. there's um early on and this was even before three minute videos you know i was doing like 10 and 12 part series on like here's matthew 24 here's a bunch of videos on that and now you can just watch them all in a row without having to search because unless you have a hundred thousand followers on tiktok you can't organize your videos which i hate is that is that why so, you can get the playlists by the way i'm just curious because i was like how come i see other people with playlists and i got more followers than them and i'm not trying to that sounded really prideful and i didn't mean that verified or yeah if verified or a hundred thousand followers i think is the i wonder if they did like a trial period yeah because i've seen some people with like five thousand followers that have it um and, Jealous. <laughs> and no, seriously, because I'm like, this would be some people I've been asked that before, like, hey, can you categorize your video? I'm like, I wish I could really wish I could. <laughs> yeah, really do. And that's because that's what I did on YouTube. So, I mean, 
all of the ones that are like my wisdom series. Um, and then I have some are that specifically gospel series. I have another one that's eschatology. I have another one that's like uh, discipleship and spiritual growth. And then I have another one that's like debates and refutations. So, I mean, it's, it's nice and organized on YouTube, which I love, but not, not so much on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so e disciple, e dot disciple for e. TikTok. Disciple. What about YouTube? How do people find you on YouTube? Same one. E dot disciple. Um, once I get to a hundred subs, um, I'll be able to change my URL to just be e dot disciple. Cause right now it's like two X, Y, Z, you know, it's just a random thing that they don't let you change until you get to a hundred. Oh, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm, close to 60 so far so I'm, i'll get there eventually um i just started that that channel like not even a month ago so it's still brand new um, but I, I already have like 200 videos posted which oh are nice posted. yeah they're all ported most of them are shorts but um, mm -hmm. most of them are, are all just ported over from tiktok i know so. one of the things i was debating on so i i used to at, at one point in my life i thought i would do youtubing and uh I really one inside hobby of mine is fishing. So I was making like fishing YouTube videos, which is an oversaturated market. And then I realized nobody wants to learn, but I actually got up to a thousand subscribers on there. And I was always thinking nice. of, yeah, like just repurposing that entire thing and turning it into a gospel one. But I'm like, man, I wonder how many people would drop off. And then I'm like, well, should I really care then at yeah, that point? Do. It just totally yeah. change the name, get rid of all the old videos and just start over brand new. Uh, cause I, like, yeah. it's already got the thousand. So you can really, you can start cause the big reason why I want to do the thousand is because you can, I don't have fancy camera equipment. Um, I want to be able to do live streaming via my phone. Uh, and, and granted I could, could buy a webcam, you know, that would be fine, mm -hmm. but I want to do live streaming via my phone and you couldn't do it until you hit a thousand subscribers. Uh, oh, okay. yeah, you can live stream from your laptop all you want, but you can't do sure. it from your phone. Uh, and I wanted to be able to do that from my phone. Uh, so yeah, tempted to do that. We'll see. I'll pray on that direction and see what's up yeah. with that. But. All right. Well, thank you once again for coming on. Hopefully y'all got a better understanding through all that uh, of what post-millennial view is or otherwise known as just the overall view would be a, a partial preterist, correct? And, and, and just hopefully everybody gets a much better understanding of where that is. And like we said, this isn't something that where people just wave the magical spiritualized wand and say spiritualized. You know, it is there is facts and evidence that support this viewpoint and honestly present some very good arguments. Um, and that's really what we wanted to get out of this is educational wise. Any parting words before we leave out? No, um, yeah, if you, if you guys want to reach out via DMs, I'm happy to answer a question. I've had uh, a number of people do that, and a number of them have actually changed their views. It's, it can be very difficult to break your traditions. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it can be very painful to do that. Um, I actually ended up doing a bunch at once because um, I, I came to Post Mill about the uh, similar time period as I came to Calvinism, which is that's a really tough one for a lot of people. So oh, yeah. um, just be willing to, to question your traditions and determine if your traditions are really truly based on scripture or if they're just based on something that someone else told you. Mm. That's, that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. That goes a long way, for not just this, but every topic regarding your faith. Study to show yourself approved. <laughs> yeah, right. not what your pastor says. <laughs> No, it, yeah, it oh, doesn't geez. mean rebel. That doesn't mean rebel and ignore everything your pastor said. I here's a word that yeah. I I don't know if you used. You said you were in the Marines, right? Mm 
Yeah, so I'm in the Army. One of the key words that we always use here, phrases, is trust but verify. Uh, we always say that. So trust, trust your pastor, trust your leaders, but always verify and look it up for yourself. And that includes us here. So once again, appreciate you coming on and uh, get ready for the next episodes. We'll see how they go. Like I said, we have pre-mill and ah-mill coming up. 